uncradio.com. It's 10 o'clock and time for Dave's Gone By. the daverhood and tropical is indeed the word tropical hot dog night and day actually it's not really tropical at night here that's that's one of the the grateful things about living in Colorado um, the fact that even when we're hitting 98 100 102 degrees in the sunshine here in Greeley, Colorado. If you go out at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, the sun goes down and you can breathe. It's cool. It's okay. It's not, yeah, you might still need a little bit of air conditioning in the house, but outside there's relief. And I say that, you know, having been reminded of the difference again, because I just got back from a trip, very short trip, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and did I say Wisconsin's plural? Okay, thank God there's only one of them. <laughs> can't, can't say I'm in love with that city. First time I've ever been there. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go there as part of a theater conference trip, and I'll tell a little bit about that. But um, staying about two and a half days, that felt like five. <clears throat> and, it, and it isn't necessarily Wisconsin's fault. Pardon me. <clears throat> It isn't necessarily Wisconsin's fault that they were going through a heat wave at the time. We're going through a heat wave here. The, the Northeast is now going through what Wisconsin had for a couple of days. But in Milwaukee, man, don't forget they're right on the water. So unlike Colorado, you feel every drop of humidity. I mean, you walk outside, and it, it's the difference between Colorado and there where... If it's a horrible hot day here and the sun is just pelting down, you go under a tree, it feels about 15, 20 degrees cooler. It's still really warm and you still kind of wish you were inside with air conditioning, but it's kind of tolerable. You can sit under a tree on a really hot day in northern Colorado and because there's so relatively little humidity, you can manage. It's kind of tolerable. It's like, okay, I can deal. Milwaukee, New York, other places on the eastern seaboard and stuff like that, forget it. 
yes, you do want to go in shade. It's better. But it still is, oh, my God. And it starts, you know, like 8 o'clock in the morning in Wisconsin, or at least where I was this time of year. So, you know, you walk out of the hotel, ready to start your day, ready to go see a museum, go touring, go look at some theaters, go, you know, just walk around, see the neighborhoods. Everybody talks about the architecture of Milwaukee. And you go three steps, and it's like, oh, no, I don't want to be here. I want to be indoors. I want to be back somewhere else. I don't want to be on foot. I don't want to be in a hot van. I just want to eat. So I say all this. Um, and it's just kind of a way of making us all remember to be grateful that as hot and miserably hot as it was yesterday and is going to be the next couple of days here in Greeley, Colorado, just remember, thank God it's Colorado. <laughs> it could be worse. I've been there. It was worse. You know, 96 in Milwaukee is worse than 102 in Greeley. Not that much worse, but it's worse. Anyway, this is also all by saying hello. My name is Dave Lefkowitz. I do a radio program here at the University of Northern Colorado. It's called Dave's Gone By. I've been hosting it in one form or another since October 2002. Was doing it in New York for many, many years. Moved out here to Greeley, got involved with UNC and uh, the UNC radio station, and now proudly doing Dave's Gone By every Saturday morning from 10 until 1 Mountain Time. That's noon to 3 for all y'all Easterners. And let's see, what else should I tell you about? Well, if you want to find out more about the show, go to davesgoneby.com. Remember, that's D-A-V-E-S, Dave's, like my name, davesgoneby.com. If you want to find out the songs we'll be playing in this show, and you don't want to wait for me to announce them or back announce them, we do keep our playlist updated throughout the show on our MySpace page, myspace.com. Search for Dave's Gone By. I also have a Facebook page if you look for my name, um, Dave Lefkowitz. It's just that Facebook still doesn't have blogs, so I can't put the playlist up there. Um, But if you go to the regular website, davesgoneby.com, You'll find all our old playlists and shows. Every show we've ever done, virtually, except for a couple that couldn't be recorded because of technical problems or other mistakes. Nearly every one of the 389 previous programs that we have done are listenable for free at davesgoneby.com. You just go to the homepage, scroll down, and find the show you want to listen to. All the information is there, all our guests, all our celebrities, all um, the cultural reviews we've done, all the, all the everything, all the comedy, all the songs, everything is there, davesgoneby.com. So I'm front-loading all this information to you. I usually tell it later in the show. But I want to get this out of the way because in just a few minutes we're going to have our special guest calling in the Broadway and regional actor Dakin Matthews. Now he has been on Broadway in Henry IV. He actually won a Drama Desk Special Citation Award for adapting Henry IV when he did it on Broadway a couple of years ago. Now he's in the very acclaimed and very star-studded revival of Gore Vidal's play, The Best Man, the political satire, and uh, getting good reviews for that. So I thought, hey, let's have a Broadway actor. We just did our special Tony show two weeks ago. Apologize for not being 
here last Saturday, but uh, needed the week off from, from getting the Tonys done, and also it was my wife's birthday, so that, of course, takes precedence. So now I'm back. It is Saturday, June 23rd, 2012. It is our 390th episode of Dave's Gone By. It's called Walk the Walk, W-A-L-K, the W-A-U-K, which is about my trip to Milwaukee. And I'll be talking about it and also playing songs that are getting us in the mood for our little Milwaukee visit. We'll also be doing our weekly Bob Dylan segment, Bob Dylan Sooner and Later. We play songs from all different times of Dylan's career, from the earliest, earliest recordings right up to the most recent albums, rarities and bootlegs all the way through. We're going to dedicate this Bob Dylan Sooner and Later to... Milwaukee playing songs that either mention Wisconsin or some of the things that we like to do when we're walking along those Great Lakes in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So Bob Dylan sooner and later, plus Inside Broadway. We've got Broadway news for you in these weeks after the Tony Awards. Plus, I've seen a couple of the shows at Little Theater of the Rockies, which is the summer theater here at the University of Northern Colorado. And it's basically run by the school, kind of, and the people who teach at the school all year. So uh, they put on about six shows over the course of the summer. Very, very busy and active, and very, very good as well. And so I'll be talking about a couple of the plays and musicals that they're doing at LTR as part of the Inside Broadway segment. And then, of course, there's always music on Dave's Gone By. We've got Saturday segues, of course, dedicated to the Milwaukee trip, and if there's time, well, the main thing Milwaukee's known for, really, is beer. It was built on Miller and Pabst and Schlitz, and so got to have kind of a beer segue and songs that mention or involve drinking and beer. So why not? Not a, not a bad show for you. <clears throat> got Dakin Matthews coming up in a few minutes. Got, um... Milwaukee songs got uh, Inside Broadway. Listen, listen, I want to play the Milwaukee song just to get us in the mood. There aren't that many songs. It's weird. There are zillions of songs about Chicago and, of course, New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles. You go looking for Milwaukee songs on Google, there's like three. (laughs) And this is one of them. This is probably the best-known one. It's by Jewel, of all people, and it's very cute. This is the Milwaukee song. Yeah, beer built 
Stefans. <laughs> Beer built this city. Sing it with me. Ready? Beer built this city. Beer built this city. One more time. Beer built this city, but there is so much more you see. To Milwaukee. <laughs> Okay, the uh, the giggle is a little cutesy and annoying, but it's Jewel and the Milwaukee song getting us in the mood for this Walk the Walk episode of Dave's Gone By here on UNC Radio. I want to let you know before we get everything started that um, <clears throat> programming on uncradio.com is uh, brought to you by a bunch of cool folks, except, oh, it's the summertime. I don't have to read most of them, but I should let you know that um, coming July 25th to Red Rocks Theater, Florence and the Machine, this huge band, obviously. Uh, they're playing at Red Rocks 7.30. If you want to buy tickets, aeglive.com, aeglive.com. And um, I know this radio station was giving away a couple of tickets to them weeks ago, back when the uh, school session was still in session. So listen here, of course, especially during the week for other ticket giveaways and other concerts that are coming to the Colorado and the northern Colorado area in the weeks and months ahead. Also want to let you know that Dave's Gone By is brought to you by a, con- a couple of very, very special sponsors, including Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Toron family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press, and they do fine work for printing, copying, binding, putting logos on mugs and calendars and golf balls and pens. Uh, they also do wedding invitations and New Year's cards. Oh, that'll be Dakin Matthews. So let's play some music, and I'll get back to the sponsors later. You betcha. Girls today in society go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, one must vote with ease. Aeschylus and Euripides, but the poet of them all, who will start them simply raving, is the poet people call the Bard of Stratford on Avon. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. Just declaim a few lines from Othello, and they'll think you're a hell of a fella. If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her, tell her what Tony told Cleopatra. If she fights when her clothes you are mussing, what her clothes much ado about nothing? Brush. Up your Shakespeare, and they'll all kowtow. With the wife of the British ambassador, try a crack out of Troilus and Cressida. If she says she won't buy it or tyke it, make her tyke it once more as you like it. If she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the cordialatus. Brush up your Shakespeare, and they'll all kowtow. Thinks thou and they'll all kowtow. Us Botkins all kowtow. Well, we do need to brush up our Shakespeare here 
And uh, the best way to do that is with somebody who knows the Bard's canon back and forth and then back again, who has kind of adapted Shakespeare, written about Shakespeare, taught Shakespeare, appeared in Shakespeare, as well as acted in dozens of television programs, as well as appearing on Broadway right now in a uh, play not by Shakespeare, but a revival of a play by Gore Badal called The Best Man, a very star-studded revival, which he's certainly going to tell us about. So please welcome, he's an emeritus professor at Cal State, he's been an actor-teacher at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, and hey, he's also been the judge on General Hospital, and <laughs> you've seen him as uh, Doug Heffernan's dad on King of Queens. This is all by way of telling you uh, just how eclectic and how... Um, well, how numerous are the acting and teaching and directing and thinking assignments are of our guest, Dakin Matthews. He's on the phone with us from New York. Uh, Dakin, can you hear us in the neighborhood? Dakin, you there? Yes, I am. Oh, hey. Oh, good. Excellent. Uh, how you doing? Oh, I can hardly hear you. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm going to try and talk a little bit louder there. Sometimes it's a little tough with... Um, our equipment here when we're doing phone interviews. But uh, if you can't hear something, just tell me again, and I'll repeat it. Of course, if you can't hear it, you won't know what I would have said. But yeah, it's anyway, very, very low. I can barely hear you. Okay. Um, forgive me, listeners, if I have to shout a little, but uh, that, that's the way this is going to have to happen. So um, okay. are, is the heat wave there like it is everywhere else right now in New York? Well, it's kind of broken a little bit now. It's just in the... I guess mid or high 70s. We're pretty comfortable. Wonderful. Okay. I mean, it's, it's been horribly hot everywhere else. So congratulations. Well, it was here for a couple of days. Yeah, it was in the 90s for a couple of days. But then we had a big thunderstorm last night that kind of broke. Wonderful. Now, um, gosh, I, I don't even know where to start with all your credits and all the things that you've done. But I think the most interesting thing for me is that in your early years, you had... You were not going to go into theater or acting at all. You were going to be a priest. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Yes, I, I uh, back in my day when I was a young boy, if you wanted to be a priest, you uh, you entered the seminary right into high school. And uh, you know when I was I entered when I was twelve actually, and um, had a wonderful education and uh, terrific training. I thought. But uh, as I approached the, 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 the final days of my training, I decided it probably wasn't the life for me and uh, came out and determined to be a teacher instead. And uh, while I was teaching, somebody dared me to, uh, to uh, audition for a play, and I thought, well, why not? It's, it's fun. So yeah. I did, and uh, that sort of launched my theatrical career. Well, I actually taught and acted for 25 years uh, simultaneously before I retired from teaching. Wow, but, but, but let, let's let's not go so quickly. Um, I, I want to roll back to that point of making that life-changing decision that you did. Did you feel, in some ways, guilty that you were turning your back on some level of the church or God or something, or or it was not that a big deal? You just said, "Oh, wait, no, I'm I meant to act, and I'm not meant to be a priest." I'm sorry, you have to repeat it again. I couldn't hear you. Um, I'm saying, was it a big deal? when you made that decision to go into theater and acting? Oh, it was a, yeah, it was a difficult, difficult decision because I'd been studying for um, 11 years, as a matter of fact, 
a training for this particular thing, and I was actually in uh, in Rome at the time studying at the Vatican. So it was a it was a pretty big deal, but it was a you know it was a decision I'd reached over the course of about a year, uh, with you know with counseling and with a lot of thought. So uh, I was there actually during the during the, the Vatican Council, and uh, it was a very heady time in the church and a very fascinating time. But my personal life was going somewhere else, basically. Well, you were you realized you like girls. I mean, I, that was that a, a big revelation. Uh, say again. You realized that you liked girls. I mean, you're married now with four oh, kids. Oh well, I think everybody likes girls, or most people like. Most men of my age liked girls. It, it it became a factor as you looked at the future, you know, the the rest of your life and uh, uh, a celibate life. You begin to think, well, do I, is this something I really want, or is this something I'm really whether you want or not, whether I'm uh, suited for? And I think that's a decision that a lot of uh, seminarians make as they're moving along. Uh, is that the life that I can live? Fruitfully, is it a life I can live well, or is it a life that I would perhaps regret having chosen <laughs> at a certain point? So, well, uh, you certainly wouldn't have been fruitful in the literal sense of the word. <laughs> can Can I ask though? I didn't realize that you lived and worked and studied at the Vatican. What was that like day to day? Being, you know, in the I mean, I visited the Vatican, but for a couple of hours. What was it like to be there? Well, uh, we were actually on, on Vatican territory, though not inside the walls of the Vatican. There's an institution, oh, must be almost 100 years old now, called the North American College, which is where um, uh, American seminarians are sometimes sent to study for uh, four years, the last four years of their, of their studies. And uh, so we were living in an all-English-speaking uh, you know, all college and attending an all-Latin-speaking uh, university, and it was um, you know it was just like pretty much any other college, except it was all male, an all male institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, your professors were obviously the sort of world's best professors. They were Jesuits at that particular university that we all attended, and uh, you know the training was ex extremely good in uh, philosophy and theology. We didn't have a lot to do with the day day to day life of the Vatican. Uh, particularly, but we were technically on Vatican soil and and uh, continuing our training in Rome. Now, as part of your studies there, were there also um, what you would call the the general ed topics, the liberal arts? Did they also co teach you? Uh, pretty much. Well, yeah. we, we were encouraged <laughs> to continue, you know, to get to know the city and to get to know its museums and its you know its history. But uh, in in seminary training, generally the first the first eight years are very heavily uh, in liberal arts. In fact, when I when I left the seminary, I found out I basically had enough credits practically to have a degree in English uh, because of all the literature and English that we studied. But uh, the last four years then uh, are very focused on theology and not a lot on the liberal arts. Although in um, in most seminaries, there will always be uh, uh, extracurricular work uh, in literature or in theater, for that matter. There's always a fairly strong, um, uh, not theater department, I wouldn't say, but extracurricular theater in, 
in, in seminaries, if there are sports programs, all that youthful male energy has to go somewhere. True. So, so okay, you leave, you make the decision to become a professor, and you're teaching literature. Are you teaching Shakespeare at that point? Are you teaching um, American lit? What was your specialty? Uh, well, when I when I uh, when I left, I went. I decided to continue my education and uh, look for uh, work. And I was most qualified, in fact, to be a teacher. So I did. Uh, start teaching and went to graduate school in English, um, mostly because it was the subject that I had studied most uh, and had most interest in. So I took a graduate degree at, at a university in California, um, which was heavily um, in, uh, heavily dominated by Renaissance English scholars. So that sort of became my major field of study. And I'd been interested in Shakespeare all my life. Even uh, as a student in the seminary, I found the the plays fascinating, and actually had acted in a, a bunch of them while I was in the seminary. Oh. So I sort of focused my studies on Shakespeare at that time and dramatic literature. And uh, it was in my, I guess, the second year of teaching that uh, somebody had, or my first year of teaching, somebody had dared me to audition for a, a Shakespeare festival. And I, uh, I went out and auditioned for it. I'd never auditioned for anything in my life and got cast as uh, Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One, for the summer. So I thought, well, that will be good. I will learn something about producing these plays while I'm teaching them as literature. And so I did that for a couple of summers, and then somebody asked me to uh, work in during the school year professionally. And I thought, well, that will be difficult because I'm a full-time you know, university right. professor or assistant professor at that point. And uh, I went to my chairman and I said, people are beginning to ask me to uh, act professionally during the school year, and it's been very helpful to my teaching and my understanding of literature and Shakespeare. So I I'd like to do it. Is, it. is it possible to work something out? And this uh, particular department at California State University, Hayward, has been very supportive, uh, always treating my, my acting as a professional uh, activity, like publishing, really, basically. So I said, how about if I teach all the 8 o'clock classes? <laughs> and uh, that means I'll be there five days a week, as opposed to most professors who are there two or three, and I'll be working from 8 to 12 every morning. And he said, well, the rest of the faculty would love that. <laughs> so I actually did that for about 15 years. I would teach almost all the 8 o'clock classes, and uh, then get out of there about noon, drive over to a theater, rehearse all afternoon, and then perform all night, and then come back and do it again the next morning. Good Lord. So I did that for a number of years. An actor's life, I mean, okay, you do a show 8 o'clock, and if you're doing Shakespeare, that means it's not getting out until 11, and then you probably go have food with the cast or wind down, and then don't get to sleep until you know, probably 1 or 2, and then you have to be back up and teaching. I mean, what did you sleep? Was it draining, or were you young enough? I'm sorry, you're breaking up. Could you say that again? I'm saying, did you, did you get sleep? I mean, was it incredibly exhausting, or did you manage? Was it just a pretty normal well, schedule? Well, um, you, you know, I always found theater incredibly energizing, and I always found uh, uh, teaching very energizing. I mean, there were times if I was, you know, this is in Northern California, so sometimes there are long commutes and late at night, and that could be somewhat exhausting, but I was I had a very supportive department and a very supportive wife and family that uh, took on a 
you know, extra burdens of raising the kids because I was gone so much. So uh, it lasted for for quite a while, and uh, I took about three years out and came back to New York and and worked at Juilliard and went to more graduate school, then went back to California and continued that again. And gradually, I began to cut back on my teaching, and then the university had an early retirement program, which I took when I was 50, and oh. then devoted myself full-time to uh, theater, film, and television. Now, you have also um, been an artistic director. You've created and run theater companies. Is that true? Uh, yes, I did. I I, um, I ran two or three theater companies uh I guess two in the Bay Area and a couple, uh, a couple elsewhere. Uh, sometimes while I was teaching, sometimes after I uh, finished teaching, and that was just uh, the first time I did it. It was because uh, I had been working there for quite a while, and had also begun to work as a dramaturge with the theater, besides being an actor and sometimes a director. So I sort of knew the theater and knew what it needed. And when the artistic director left, I applied for the job and got it. And then. It happened again at the Shakespeare Festival when the festival was in some financial trouble and they were about to close down. And I proposed a method, a, a way of a way of organizing it and a way of presenting that might save them some money. And I did that for about four or five years. I'm interested. And then I moved to uh, L.A. sort of full time around 1988, 1989, I guess. And that's a totally different world. Uh, yeah. Uh, Many, many more actors, but much less theater work. People are there to really um, do film and television, make, make enough money to put their kids through college, which is why I came down to L.A. <laughs> and, um, and you did. But I'm... there were some wonderfully trained actors there who were not working as much as they wanted to, so I founded a theater company in Los Angeles for actors who were there to do film and television, but we had great classical training and wanted to continue to study the classics. So it's kind of a work group, and it's developed into a, one of the small professional theaters in Los Angeles called the Antius Company. And I ran that for about 10, 11 years, and then turned it over to someone else. Now, now I'm kind of interested, when you had these jobs as artistic director and, um, and running theaters, why, why not stay forever in, in some of the things? It, it kind of interests me how you know it's time to leave or when you've accomplished a certain amount and you realize it's time to move on rather than holding on for a very long time? Um, well, artistic directing is... is uh, I, I always looked on it as a sort of a, a organizing a group of talented people and not sort of dominating them and, and trying to delegate as much of the work as possible, just giving it sort of a direction and a vision and an organization. But... Uh, so that's basically how artistic, how I worked as an artistic director. There aren't many actors who are artistic directors, uh, which is what I was primarily. And I think uh, the theater could benefit from a, from a few more because actors are, of course, the great strength of any theater company. And there aren't many theater companies anymore. Most of them are sort of theater buildings and theater administrations. But the idea that actors should be full-time members of a company is... Uh, which is how the, the regional movement started, but it sort of lost its way on that. So I tried, whenever I was an artistic director, I always tried to keep a company of artists together for as long a period of time as possible. And that made artistic directing actually much easier because you 
You had a group of artists that you knew who knew one another, so you weren't going through the process of casting every play from scratch every time. You weren't working with unknowns, people that you didn't know. You had a, it was kind of like a family enterprise. And the two theaters that I ran in California were sort of based on that principle of trying to keep artists together for a whole season, uh, playing, uh, having, uh, being able to offer them a range of roles over, over a whole year or over a whole summer. And then summer after summer, bringing back some of the same people, that 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 really lightens the load of artistic directing a lot. I was never very good at fundraising. I have to admit that. And uh, e- each time I left these theaters uh, uh, and was replaced by somebody, it was generally somebody who was much better at fundraising than I was. I, I could see my weakness in that area, and that's become kind of the dominant mode that artistic directors have to be in now. Well, I'll bet, though, that one of your strengths, aesthetically, is convincing people that Shakespeare is still not just relevant, but fun and entertaining and worth seeing and worth doing. Is that more and more of an uphill struggle? How do you convince people that Shakespeare is worth doing and that he's still... Ah, yes. Okay, that's a good question. It's actually always easier to convince actors that Shakespeare is worth doing, because once they start dealing with it, they realize what rich opportunities there are to to, uh, develop and demonstrate their acting skills and what challenges there are. I mean, actors love to do Shakespeare. Uh, You ask any actor what he prefers to, and most of them will say Shakespeare, because it challenges them to work at the height of their powers. It's like going to the Olympics, you know. If you're training as an athlete to do something, your ultimate goal is to get into the championships and maybe to win one. Well, Shakespeare is the World Series of theater. I mean, Shakespeare is where you show, you know, what you can do. It is actually not hard to convince people to like Shakespeare if you just produce it. It's actually just the word Shakespeare that puts people off, not the actual experience of it. I, when we were doing, uh, when I was running the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, one of the things we always tried to do was to do one of his least known plays. Every summer we would try to do one of his least known plays. And they were always the most successful, much to our surprise. I mean, everybody had already seen it, you know, mm-hmm. As You Like It and Romeo and Juliet, but they would come to see Pericles or King John or something like that, and they would love it. You just have to find a way to get them in there and then present the plays honestly. And audiences love it. They have the same reaction, frankly, to George Bernard Shaw. I've always been convinced that if you just gave gave audiences good productions of Shakespeare and Shaw, you'd never have box office problems. People do like to see Shakespeare. It's, it's, It's what happens is if you do bad productions of Shakespeare, then that can be very off-putting. People will say, oh, I, I don't understand it, or I didn't understand it, or I won't understand it. And the fact is, Shakespeare is pretty much understandable by anybody nowadays if the actors are trained to make it understandable. So, well, but do you... I don't think it's difficult. I mean, Shakespeare festivals crop up, you know, everywhere around summertime, everywhere, <laughs> indoors and out. It's, but... not a, it's not a hard sell to actors, and it's not a hard sell to audiences, with good productions, but but it, it sounds daunting. It's not really. But you're not a purist. I mean, it would be okay to cut a three and a half hour one down to three hours. That would be that's okay. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're pretty sure that the, that the scripts that we get were Shakespeare's longest possible versions and that he himself or his company cut them and expected them to be cut. He always talked about two hours. Well, there's only one play in the canon that could actually be done in two hours. Uh, but we're pretty sure, especially from text that exists in a couple of formats, that cutting was a normal, a normal yeah. practice. And uh, I, I don't, I don't, I have no objection to cutting. I don't cut because I don't understand it. I have to wait until I understand it before I cut it. I always, cutting is really an art, and it's one that I've been sort of studying and practicing for 45 years, so I, I kind of understand that. But, you know, people will go to, you know, three and four hour events of other things. Uh, three hours of Shakespeare is not too much to ask of people if it's always consistently, you know, clear and entertaining. We're talking with Dakin Matthews. He is obviously a Shakespeare scholar, an actor, a director, an artistic director. He's currently appearing on Broadway in Gore Vidal's The Best Man, among the likes of other performers like O, Angela Lansbury, and James Earl Jones. And so I um, have to ask, do you... I mean, you, you're a veteran performer, and you know your stuff, but do you get intimidated by working with the likes of those? <laughs> well, it's been, it, it, it's been a treat uh, to work. I worked with Angela before a number of times. I guested on Murder, She Wrote, three times, twice as the victim and once as a murderer. I think I'm the only person who's been both the murderer and the victim <laughs> on her show. So I've known her for quite some time. She was also very involved uh, in supporting the acting company, which I was a founding member of. And I taught her son, who 30 years later directed me in episodes of Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> so I've known Angela for quite some time. She's a sweet and wonderful, talented woman. And James Earl, of course, I, this is the first time I've met James Earl Jones, but everybody knows who he is. It's just, uh, I look at them and I say, you know, I may have 15 more years in my career. Because they're, they're in their <laughs> mid-80s and they're still working at the top of their game. So it's, uh, it's and, and they're also the most generous and uh, friendly people that you could possibly imagine. I mean, when you're doing a, a long run with a cast this big on Broadway, it's, it's, uh, it's astonishing how easy it's been and how family-like it feels. And mostly, it starts at the top. Our producer is extraordinarily uh, open and, and generous and fun, comes to the performances, loves actors, loves to play, produces because he likes theater. And then he's got these two great veterans who are... Uh, for the side of their talent, amazingly humble and uh, and sweet people. So it's been a really uh, wonderful social experience, besides being a great theatrical experience. Well, why don't you tell listeners who have not seen The Best Man on Broadway a little bit about the show and, of course, about the character that you play? Well, the play itself is is really a great American play. It's you know Gore was very involved in politics all his life, and he really knows politics. So as a picture of politics at a particular time, 1960, which was a sort of watermark year of age for year for politics in America and for understanding how political conventions work, understanding the relationship between the psychology of being a politician and the idealism of trying to be a politician, it's it's a wonderful exploration of that. Besides which, he's a great playmaker. He wrote a lot for television and film. He understands how to construct a drama so that it keeps people interested and 
suspense. He's also extraordinarily smart and very funny, so the play is very funny where it needs to be and very smart where it needs to be. But I think the most interesting thing that we all uh, experienced doing it, Gore was with us for a couple of days uh, at the beginning of rehearsal period, chatting to us about the play, but about, you know, everything that we wanted to ask him, is that so little has changed in 50 years, that there are things brought up in the play about the about the political landscape of the 1960s, which are just as important, or even more uh, uh, timely today. I mean, it was astonishing that suddenly contraception, which we all thought was an issue that would never raise its like in politics again, thanks to Rick Santorum, contraception was back as a major issue in a political campaign, as it was, in a sense, in this play, so that he was sort of prescient about where politics was going, also in terms of sort of a, a fundamentalist Christian running against a sort of an educated Ivy League atheist or <laughs> agnostic. I mean, it's quite astonishing that 50 years later the play still feels like it's timely. People ask us at talkbacks, well, how much did he rewrite this for, for the current production because it seems so timely? And we have to say, not at all didn't change a word from when he originally wrote it. In fact, I think about 20 years ago, he tried to do a rewrite and update it for a Los Angeles production. It was not terribly successful. Going back to the original script, has made it just a, a winner. And for us also, the second most fascinating thing, and something we love about the play, is people, I think, I mean, it's so heavily star-laden. Besides James Earl Jones and Angela Lansbury, you get to see Candace Bergen on stage, which is terrific, and Eric McCormick, who's a wonderfully classically trained actor before he did Will and Grace, and he's a terrific, uh, terrific on stage. And John LaRoquette, who mm. is a sort of an icon in situation comedy, turns out to be an extremely smart and wonderful, you know, stage actor, even though he's done very little stage acting in his life. He's already won a Tony for his first public production last year and got nominated for one. No, he didn't get nominated for one, but he did win, get some nominations. So you, people come, I think, to see the stars, because you're never going to get that assembly of stars on a stage. There hasn't been that in I don't know how many years. And by the time we get halfway through the second act, suddenly they are drawn completely into the story. And whereas stars are getting entrance and exit applause, now lines, plot twists, uh, surprises in, in the story are getting applause and laughter and, uh, and cheers and gasps. And that's what's kind of fun. It's very smart of Jeffrey to, to uh, Jeffrey Richards, our producer, to load it up front with so many stars and then sort of trick the audience into getting involved into a wonderful play and care more about what happens to the characters than the fact that they saw those stars playing them. Now, did you get a chance to see the uh, Broadway production a decade ago? And did it influence, if you did? did no, it, I uh, didn't. I didn't see that, although our stage manager had worked on it and uh, uh, Mark Blum, who's replaced Michael McKeon after the car accident that Michael had, he was right, car yeah. jumped up on the sidewalk and ran into him and broke his leg in a number of places, and Michael had to drop out of the show. His first performance he missed in 40 years, he said. But Mark Blum, who took his role over just a couple weeks ago, uh, was played the same role in, in that production 12 years ago. Yeah, I did not get a chance to see it. Now, Apparently it's very, very different. Hmm. Apparently, the, um, the the scenic design is much more appropriate for this. Uh, the beautiful, complex 
set on two turntables that really I think is, is astonishing. And then uh, the producers and the designer have also turned the entire theater into convention hall. And the other smart thing I think that Jeffrey and we were very fortunate to have a great director, Michael Michael Wilson from uh, from Hartford Stage originally, who who handled all the personalities and all the actors coming from different traditions and different levels of celebrity, brilliantly stayed always true to the text and always encouraging. They de- they decided to turn the entire theater into a convention hall, and that was uh, so. It's kind of almost an environmental show, which is I think very exciting for the audience. And then I think the third really smart thing was to was to hire a lot of essentially comedians to play straight roles. And uh, John LaRiquette and Eric McCormick, obviously, and Candace Bergen is, you know, her comedy series. Yeah. These are all really trained comedians. So basically, you get in a serious play with a lot of wit, you get people who know how to deliver those lines to get the laughs to keep the play from getting too serious or too somber, that keep the sort of tone uh, elevated and light and keep the audience entertained. I think it's been a real a real treat to work with such uh, such wonderful comic actors in this very serious play. Now, speaking of well-known actors and performers that uh, Dakin Matthews has worked with, I am curious about anecdotes of other actors that either you have worked with or even taught in your years at ACT and in California. I mean, you feel free to name drop and any anecdotes or memories of the early stages of some people we know very well? Well, yeah, um, my wife uh, was, uh, was a member of uh, the very first acting class ever to go to Juilliard. Wow. She was an actress at the time. She's a director now. She directs all my plays, and I have a small, we have a small theater in Los Angeles where she directs. And she directs elsewhere from time to time. Uh, she was a member of what they call Group One, which is the first group ever to be invited to go through Juilliard as an acting class. And, uh, well, members of that company were the famous ones, obviously, Kevin Klein, Patti LuPone, David Ogden Stiers, uh, were, you know, it was after about three years of their being in that class, John Housen just said, oh, I've got the makings of a real company here. And he decided to keep them together after they graduated to form the acting company. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's in its 40th year now, the acting company, now run by Margot Harley, and keeps hiring, and you know, actors at the very beginnings of their career, and uh, many of them go on to, you know, great fame and fortune. So that was, a, that was a great period of time. I was teaching at Juilliard at that time while my wife was a student there, and teaching some of these actors uh, who would go on to have fabulous careers. Well, yeah. And then there was a period where I was teaching at uh, ACT while I was an actor there, and uh, many, uh, you know, many wonderful students came through that program and uh, launched their careers. There, Annette Benning was one of them. I think I, I think I gave her one of her first professional jobs. She was a Juliet in a production of Romeo and Juliet that I produced at Berkeley Shakespeare. And then I think I directed her in her first professional show, which was uh, Chalk Garden at ACT, where at the age of 24 she played the 14-year-old girl Laurel. And it was just wonderful. So, uh, you know. That's been very exciting for me. Probably my most interesting experience as a as a mm-hmm. budding film actor. I, I moved to L.A. as I say after 25 years of doing regional theater, and one of my first jobs I got hired in was to do the movie of Nuts with uh, Barbara Streisand and Richard Dreyfuss. And there was a I was very surprised when I got cast, but it was very exciting. I was directing a show in 
Denver at the time and flew back for an audition and found out that I got the job. And I was still teaching grammar at a college when I got the job, so that was kind of exciting. And I went to the first, Martin Ritt was directing it, and he said, well, we're going to rehearse for two weeks. I mean, you never do that in film. You don't rehearse. But he decided we were going to rehearse for two weeks. And he said, and there will be a first cast read-through. And I went to the first cast read-through, and there were about 15 of us in a big circle. And I looked around the room at all these stars, Dreyfus and Streisand and Carl Malden and and, uh, Eli Wallach, James... Uh, I mean, I can't even remember how many. There were about 50. I mean, I was the only person in the room I didn't know. These were all icons of great, not just film acting, but theater acting. And it was like I was in actor heaven. That was very, very exciting for me. And it was, uh, you know, I did, I don't do a lot of large films and large roles, but in the last, you know, 10 or 12 years, it's been really a treat. I work with Sean Connery on a film. I worked with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis just recently on the Lincoln film with Spielberg. And uh, with Jeff Bridges on uh, uh, you know, the remake of True Grit, these have all been really exciting for me. I mean, these are wonderful names to drop. Do you have any anecdotes about these people? And they don't have to be bad or you know airing dirty laundry things. Do you have? But just memories or, or um, ways that they work or act or direct that have stayed with you. Well, I, you know, actually, I have to leave now because I have to walk over to the oh, theater. Of course. But I'm going to sort of sneak out of that question. But I will say <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I live about two blocks from the theater, but we have a matinee today. Sure. Um, I will say my, my experience has been always, almost always, an extraordinarily pleasant one that most professional actors, whether it's in theater or it's in film, are genuinely serious about their craft. Uh, pleasant to their fellow workers. That's the thing that I think has always been extraordinary for me. That when, even when you work with major stars, people whose whose persona are so so much bigger than how much they are themselves, they are often very generous with you, uh, very uh, you know sociable with you, and very professional with you. I remember, remember when I was, I guess my last uh, murder she wrote with Angela, and she was always very very nice. And uh, she, she, I remember once she came around at the, she was shooting the last scene where she has to do the big summation, you know, and, and, and reel off this long, long monologues about who did what to whom and how she figured it out, you know, those typical things. <laughs> yeah. But she would come, to, she came over to each cast member at that point and said, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to have to use cue cards held up behind you while, while to do this summation because there's just too many words for me to remember. At, at my age, I'm working long hours, so I apologize. You know, she apologized to her fellow actors for the fact that she had to read off cue cards and couldn't look them right in the eye. I thought that was, you That's know, nice. pretty astonishing. A very, a very generous and, and, and genuine person. So I've always enjoyed that. Well, I, I'm sorry to cut this yes. off, but I actually do have to actually go down to my dressing room and get ready to play Clyde Carlin in The Best Man. But it's been a real treat talking to you. Absolutely a, a delight to talk to Dakin Matthews. Go see him on Broadway in The Best Man. It's running till what? September, uh, till the end of the summer, right? You go through to September 8th, yep. September 8th. Go see and him. And we're bringing in a whole new, uh, you know, uh, whole new quartet of stars uh, in a couple of weeks. So uh, some of the people have prior, prior commitments, either in theater or film, and they have to sort of rotate out. So we're rotating some in. You can come in now and and see some new people, John Stamos 
and uh, Kristen Davis is coming in. Um, uh, Sybil Shepherd is coming in. Wow. And what's the other one? Who's replacing Angela? You told me. What's your name? Oh, and Elizabeth Ashley. So oh, we're wow. bringing in four new stars. So even if you've seen it once, you'll come back and see more the next time. And you can still see Dakin Matthews. He's in for the whole run. Everybody, go <laughs> see him. And Dakin, it's just been absolutely a delight. Thank you so much for being in the Thank neighborhood. Thank you, David. Have a Bye-bye. great day. It's been pleasant. Bye-bye. Iver there with their song Wisconsin talking about Wisconsin and Milwaukee on this episode of Dave's Gone By it's June 23rd 2012 it's 5 to 11 in the morning mountain time here at the University of Northern Colorado I'm Dave Lefkowitz for listening to Dave's Gone By and yes we just got through talking to Dakin Matthews about theater and New York and went to see, well, I wouldn't say theater in another state because it wasn't really a theater trip per se. All right, let, let me let me backtrack. Let me explain. Um, I belong to an organization called the American Theater Critics Association. They've been around about 30 years or so now, and it is exactly what it says it is. It's a bunch of theater critics from all over America who get together in this kind of guild and the idea is to improve the nature of theater criticism to share war stories and stories about you know what it's like to be 
a working theater critic to be publishing, to try and be publishing. And of course, over the past 15 years, it's also been about the, um, the changing nature of all journalism, print journalism, radio, television, and everybody's scrambling to be part of the new technology and the new, uh, whatever the new paradigm of modern journalism is. Now that newspapers are you know, not always going to be printed on paper anymore, and then you know, things are online instead, and you're not full-time anymore, and you're just a freelancer or a staffer, you're competing against bloggers or anybody who buys a ticket to a show, then comes home and writes about it on their little website or blog, suddenly becomes sometimes legitimate competition to people who've been reviewing theater professionally for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it's this agglomeration of critics from all over the country. And the fun thing that they do is they get together twice a year. Once a year, they spend a weekend either in New York seeing theater or they'll go to like the Louisville Humana Festival or they'll go to uh, very often the Denver Center and see the New Play Summit that they do in midwinter. And that's kind of fun. And you get to see plays read as well as staged. And so that's once a year. And then later in the year, in the summer, we all get together and we go to a city in America and see a week's worth of theater there. And it also, you know, we'll see museums and we'll have tours and, and sample the food, of course, as well. Because, you know, critics are not going to be critics unless we get some food involved. <laughs> we don't get many perks at all. We get three theater tickets if we're lucky, you know, and, and that's worth a lot more than it used to be. When I first started being a critic, you know, when I first started writing 20-something years ago, uh, Broadway tickets were still $20, $25 for orchestra. Now, good luck finding orchestra tickets at full price for $125. So when you get still um, the chance to go to the theater for free, that's a really nice perk now. But it is very often the only perk. There are very few full-time paid theater critics out there in America at all. There weren't many to begin with, and there are much fewer now. So everybody's on a wing and a prayer. Everybody's freelance. Everybody's kind of, you know, they were, uh, shall we say, took golden parachutes and early retirements and those sorts of things and now become editors at large, as it were, or contributors, contributing editors, instead of, you know, full-time paid people with benefits. Or anything. That's the way of the American economy. So we get together and we'll go to um, places like Seattle and Cleveland and Los Angeles and San Francisco and uh, Portland, Oregon and to Shakespeare festivals so that once a year we'll, we'll share all our stuff from where we all come from but also go and share the shows that we're all seeing together and talk about those and say, oh, well, I saw this Shakespeare production here. It was okay, but boy, you should have seen the one I saw two years ago or, oh, that was the worst thing ever and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's kind of, you recharge that way. You bring everyone together. For the first three days, everybody gets along and they're very happy to see each other and they're saying, oh, my goodness, you know, this was what my season was like in my town and what was it like in yours? And then by the fourth day, being persnickety theater critics and writers, they're all kind of bitching at each other and they're tired and they want to go home and, and stuff and they're bitching about the shows they're seeing. But for those first couple of days, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, 
This year, once again, the theater critics went to Chicago because Chicago is really, apart from New York, the best theater place in America. There's more theater in Chicago than there is in New York. Is that Chicago doesn't have really a Broadway per se. It's got sort of an off-Broadway scene and this enormous off-off-Broadway scene. Or at least it did the last couple of times I was in Chicago. The, the amount of work that is being done is enormous. I don't know if the past few years of the economy have chilled that or if other factors have, have taken their toll or if it's still just as healthy and thriving as it had been 25 years ago, 15 years ago. So the, the theater critics go back there every few years and they have a wonderful time and they see a lot of theater. They went to see The Iceman Cometh, that huge four and a half hour Eugene O'Neill play that they're doing uncut <laughs> in Chicago with Nathan Lane and Brian Dennehy. And there's real talk of trying to bring that into New York somehow, but you have the logistics of a show that long um, probably only being able to be done six times a week instead of the usual eight. So the producers have to figure out how to make that work monetarily. They have to worry, will New Yorkers go see a four and a half nearly five-hour show, even if it has three intermissions in it, which really breaks it up. So th there's all that going on. The critics went to see this production and other shows while they're in Chicago. I was not able to go. I um, had... I just, I just saved my money and my time for other things this particular year, even though I love Chicago and would have loved to gone back. But one of the nice things that they did for the American Theater Critics Association trip to Chicago was strap on a little side piece, God, that sounds filthy, of, of a couple of days after the Chicago conference to Milwaukee, because it is a sister city. It's only about 90 minutes away from Chicago by like car or train. It's that close. And so there are Milwaukeeans go to Chicago all the time, which hurts Milwaukee a little bit theatrically, because um, Ann Siegel who was a guest on my Tony show two weeks ago, telling us about the theater scene in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, and she was telling us then that because Chicago is so close, when touring shows come, um, they'll very often bypass Milwaukee because they'll figure, hey, if the Milwaukee theater crowd wants to see the show badly enough, they'll just come to Chicago. And man, we'll still get the Chicago crowd anyway. It's not worth it for us to plunk it down in the Marcus Center or, or wherever touring shows go to Milwaukee, um, which hurts the Milwaukee theater scene a little bit. Meanwhile, of course, Chicago people, if they want to see Milwaukee theater, they'll go to Milwaukee Rep or they'll go to Next Act or, or stuff at the Pabst Theater and places, Skylight Opera Theater. So you know, it, it works a little more in Chicago's favor being that close than it does for Milwaukee's favor. But anyway, Ann Siegel, as I said, who was a guest on The Tony Show, she was the organizer of the Milwaukee side trip of this American Theater Critics Association jaunt our journey. And so that I went to because I've never been to Milwaukee before. I've never been to Wisconsin. Never had reason to go to Wisconsin. And I was like, okay, great. You know, I get to see this new city and it's <coughs> very well known and built up place. Lively and, and populous and a lot of stuff to do. And of course, they've got theater there. They've got the Milwaukee rep. They've got the next act and places like that. Of course, just our luck. When the Chicago 
tour, or I should say our Chicago trip, is happening. That is just the time when Milwaukee plays dead, theater-wise. That's just the time when Milwaukee has all these festivals. There's a Polish festival, there's a, an art festival, a bicycle festival, a brew festival, you name it. Milwaukee is like festival city, uh, especially during the summer, but all year round. But th at this particular time especially, because so many of the crowds empty out to these festivals, the theaters just play dark. They don't bother doing anything, the major theaters. And so all these theater critics come into town and there's no theater to see, which is th this <laughs> wonderful, hilarious irony. We did get to go to visit the theater spaces, so we were able to walk around the Milwaukee Repertory Theater, which is enormous. It's in this beautiful, giant, marbly office building right in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. So, you know, you come in to that, you think you're walking into a major hotel banking area, like a concourse thing. And then suddenly you're going up the stairs and, oh, wow, there's there's the big theater and there's the cabaret space that they've got and there's their 200-seat um, black box, which is pretty big for a, a black box. Um, and so it was really fun to see that, fun to see the prop shop and the costume shop and the, you know, the little props and things that they put all over the place. There's this wonderful painting that they have. I wish I'd taken a picture of it, of um, a painting that they did for the uh, production of Irma Vep that they've done a few years ago. And that very, very funny, hilarious, almost Grandma Moses-y painting of a woman with very googly eyes that's on stage for part of the mystery of Irma Vep. And they've got it hanging a very prominent place towards their stairwell. And, you know, every time you walk by it, you can't miss it. You just look at that and break into giggles. I love stuff like that. And it's enjoyable to go into theaters even when there's not a show going on. You get that, that special feeling. You sit in the seats, you look up at the ceiling, and you, you see the chandeliers and the ornate architecture and the design, and then you get up on the stage. And, you know, I've done it a few times in my life, and it's still, you walk up, and you're, you're looking out on, be it, you know, 1,200 seats or 200 seats, whatever it is, you just get that feeling. And so it was fun to be there. We also saw the Pabst Theater, which is this marvelous jewel that is used by Milwaukee Rep for their Christmas Carol every year. And the Pabst is also more known for concerts, really, and, and uh, bands that come in. And then uh, also the next act, the, I mean, just nice to walk into theaters and see them. I wish I could have seen the actual stuff that they're doing in them. Would have been nice, but hey, maybe another time. I will say, Milwaukee, in nice weather, is probably a really nice walking city. As I said at the opening of the show, this was not nice weather in Milwaukee. This was, ugh, just this brutal heat wave. New Yorkers understand it now because they just went through their own heat wave a couple of days ago. Colorado's getting it now. You know, really, we've got it. It's going to be 100 today. So imagine 100 almost with 90% like humidity. And you'll understand what Milwaukee and trying to walk around is like. But the, the, the disappointing thing about Milwaukee and even the downtown is that it doesn't really cluster very well. I mean, you go to a city street in New York City and it's, <clears throat> you know, restaurant, restaurant, Dwayne Reed, little shop, store, other restaurant, 
place to buy, I don't know, dog paraphernalia, uh, Rite Aid, other things, weird clothing shop, thrift store, Dwayne Reed, and then restaurant, 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 McDonald's. I mean, all within a two-block radius of New York. And, and any downtown and major cities tend to cluster that way, too. I mean, I've been to Omaha, Nebraska, and they've gotten you know, uh, you know, a few streets where the, the things are one after the other. Even uh, godforsaken Fargo, North Dakota, has a main street. And you go up and down a couple of the main streets, and you've seen the whole damn city. But it's all there. You know, the restaurants that are there, the pubs that are there, that's where they are. The, the closest I could find to that, to approximate that in Milwaukee, was there's two kind of streets facing each other, they're parallel, that have a few pubs, one after the other. Because that's the food I guess they're known for. Beer, brews, brats, and pub food. And so you go down them, and you know, one after the other, there's about seven pubs within this little radius. But try and find other restaurants I mean, you can walk a half a mile to a mile or so just to try and find one place, an Italian place, a, a Japanese, a Thai place. It, it's, it's, they're not, there's no central place to go. And when it's 100 degrees, you don't want to be walking around saying, oh, God. Yeah. So I ended up eating in a pub, which is not my favorite place to eat. You know, I particularly like ethnic food, especially when I'm out of town. I want to try other things. One of my fellow critics explained that phenomenon of Milwaukee and said, well, it's really, it's about neighborhoods. <clears throat> Downtown Milwaukee is, is kind of like Texas in a way. You, you, you go into the, the center, but it's about the office buildings and the workers and stuff like that. And there's some places to eat and, and do your banking and shopping a little bit. But really, Milwaukee comes alive in the smaller region sections. You have to go out to the neighborhoods to find the good Polish restaurants and to find the ethnic places because there's so many ethnicities in Milwaukee. And so that, that was a kind of a disappointment, not really to be able to explore that. Um, you know, all the theater critics just ended up eating at a brew place. And then, I don't know, I, I, I wish I had been to gotten more of a taste of the Milwaukee regions and the, the specialness and even, you know, the sit down and have a Polish brat at a real Polish place rather than, you know, a Dave and Buster's kind of pub place. I, I did go to, what was it? Um, I don't remember what it was called. There was a barbecue pub place that had been on that show on TV where the guy eats uh, the eating challenge, man versus food, so he'll sit down and eat, or try to eat five pounds of steak within a certain amount of time without dying. And if he does, I think he gets a t-shirt <laughs> and, and good ratings on TV. And if he doesn't, well, he, he doesn't, everybody goes, aw. So he came to this place, and I guess he had their pulled pork sandwich and some ribs and whatever else it was. So okay, I was there, yay. It was okay, it was pretty good. Not the, you know, not the best ribs I've ever had. And um, how did I get on this? Well, of course, I'm a critic. I'm a writer. I'm, of course, I'm going to get on a food tangent. But that, that was, again, that disappointment of Milwaukee not being sort of centralized in a way. Of um, As much as it would be a nice walking city in good weather, you need a car to really get around to the places that you probably really want to visit once you've gotten through, like, the major iconic places. Now, one of those, though, is the Milwaukee Art Museum. 
And that, I can't say anything bad about that place. That is a wonderful, beautiful place to see art. And they renovated it, and they're still doing some more renovating of it, but they put it together a few years ago. And because it's on the water, right? I think it's Lake Michigan. They're right on the water. That's their backyard. They designed the main part of this museum as the prow of a ship. And it just it, it goes to that focal point, that fulcrum, and you're, you're looking out windows at the water, and it's just so airy and beautiful and clean and such an open, white, bright space. And it gets you just in the mood for being there, let alone seeing art as it's displayed. And uh, there's some marvelous, you know, the usual... 18th, 19th century art that we all like to look at, the Turners and the, the Moreaus. So there's a beautiful Jean Moreau there, an early one that's not what you would think of with this particular painter. Normally you think of him with the, the weird stars and the lines and the, the splatters of paint and this futuristic, modernistic, like Dave Brubeck album cover kind of look to the art. And there, but there's a Moreau there of a vase of flowers I think from the 1920s, that was fantastically pretty and, and beautiful and normal, <laughs> you know? It, it isn't star, uh, flowers represented by stars and dots and squiggly lines. It is a vase of flowers, and it is gorgeous. What else did I love there? Oh, oh, there's um, a painter. No, excuse me, she's a, um, an artist, works more in the, the sculpture vein, and her name is Tara Donovan. And I think she's won a MacArthur Genius Grant or stuff like that. Well-deserved. If nothing else but for the sheer f labor that must have gone into her large-scale installation-type things. Because you go into this sort of main area of the art museum at, in Milwaukee, and she's got an exhibit there right now. And she's only got three pieces there, but they're amazing. One of them is that she built this kind of stalagmite, stalactite-looking thing uh, lit from below with pink light. So it really looks like coral under the ocean or, or in a cave, like this, this kind of beautiful pink stalagmite. And then you go up closer to it and you realize that it's just see-through little buttons, coat buttons, thousands of them built, designed to look like this coral reef. And then you go into her other stuff, and she's got two other pieces there. Again, huge, huge things. One is called Haze, and it's the wall. She's taken one of the walls of the building, and it's kind of, sort of weirdly funky looking. It almost looks like um, gloppy sour milk, if you were to, able to turn that into a wall somehow. And you look at the wall, it's like, wow, there's kind of an interesting texture to the look of it. And you go up, and you see that it's made out of probably tens of thousands of drinking straws put in, in, in different um, configurations, pushed out a little bit more or a little bit less. And it all together in the proper light gives this impression of a gauzy, hazy sort of wall. And then her, her other one, which is really just staggering, is um, she took like a polyvinyl binders, sort of like you, when you have loose leaf notebooks and they're not the hard covers but the soft vinyl -y covers and they're kind of see-through sepia-toned vinyl and she put layered them on top of each other through um, it's not a wall but it's kind of a, 
a break front in the room. So she cut out a piece of that. Um, so, so it's just open space, but then she put into the open space all these layered folders, all these vinyl, colored vinyl things. And the, the, the amazing thing about it is that it's facing one of the main windows that looks out onto the sky and Lake Michigan. So when you pass by this cutout in this sort of half wall, you look through it and at first you see, okay, so they're, they're layered folders, no big deal. You move and it looks totally different. You move again and you look through it and suddenly you see the ocean, but the ocean is kind of, the, the visual is transmuted through these folders and through the colors and through the bending of the light. And that looks totally different. And then you walk around the other side of it and then you look at it through the side that's facing the museum. And it's a totally different image as well. So you, and, and, and if you start moving or walking while you're looking through it, you get more images and more sort of a play of light and movement. I cannot, I wish I could describe it better. You have to go to the Milwaukee Museum of Art to see the work of Tara Donovan there. It's really wonderful. And I'm sorry if I'm spending too much time on this one artist because this is a major museum. I mean, they've got the stuff. They've got the Egyptian things, the old stuff I didn't look at. I, I, you know, if I hate to say it, but I, a lot of that stuff bores me, the knights and armor stuff, the African stuff. I want to see the modern European, American, 17th, 18th century, 19th, 20th stuff. They've got a lot of it, a lot of quite good stuff there. Um, but it, it was the Tara Donovan thing that really made the huge impression on me. Because if you've been to a dozen museums in your life, well, you know, okay, there's a, a Cassatt and there's um, Georgia O'Keeffe. They have two O'Keeffe's there. One of them is pretty great. One of them is this, this um, big pink flower thing, but not her usual sexualized uh, flowers in a vase sort of thing. But it, it's a little more... Um, not impressionistic, but a little more surreal in a way. Just this star-like pink flower against a pinkish landscape. Really wonderful, Georgia O'Keeffe. But anyway, this is all to say that of all the things that I did in Milwaukee, that Milwaukee Art Museum, that was number one. And I would gladly see that again. It's like the Arts Institute of Chicago. You know, if you go to Chicago every time, every couple of years, you're going to have to go back to everything that you've already done. But the Art Institute, you got to go back to. And I would certainly go back to the Milwaukee Art Museum. I also went to the Milwaukee Public Art Museum, which, uh, not less my thing. We all know these kinds of museums. They're the science and industry types, and they're basically meant for children and school groups. So you try to go in there, you start looking at the dinosaurs and the exhibits of the Pleistocene era and the rocks and the insects and the birds and the, all that stuff. And you're trying to deal with this while there's just shrieking school groups all around you running through, having fun, having, uh, you know, the, the people try to give them a little bit of information when they're not yelling and eating and whatevering. Not, not a terrible museum, not the worst of its kind, just not my thing. They have... Uh, what I do kind of enjoy is you walk through and they do those, um, I don't know if they're frescoes, they're, they're exhibits of old Milwaukee. What was Milwaukee like uh, 200 years ago, 150 years ago? And so you go through and then you know, there's the blacksmith shop and there's the printing press. And it's all the usual cool stuff. They did have all the ethnicities represented. So you would see like the, um, 
the Swedish influence, and then you would see um, a Jewish family that was kind of neat. I mean, it's funny because you're grateful that they're showing a quote-unquote typical Jewish family, but they're also throwing in all these markers that are so stereotypical so that there's a challah on the table. As if, of course, of course, if it was a Jewish family in Milwaukee, they would have a challah on the table there and a mezuzah and a menorah on the wall and a Bible somewhere because, yeah, the, every Jew, their house is exactly like that. You know, but, but they do it for all the other cultures as well, the German. and There's a, even a, an example of a woman cutting sausage from uh, Usinger's sausage works. And the coolest thing about that is that you still see the sign when you're walking the streets of Milwaukee and the building that Usinger's was and probably still is. I think they're still around as a sausage maker out there. So it, it's sort of neat to go to this museum and see an exhibit and see like early, oh, what was it like at Usinger's 150 years ago? And realize, oh, they're still there. You know, this was this is not just some old ancient history thing. This is was and it still is. And I kind of I always like that. Um, what, what else did we do? Oh, the other really um, neat thing about the Milwaukee trip, since we do so much theater on this show, was getting to see Ten Chimneys. And this is a, a lovely little retreat house, not so little actually, in Milwaukee, where Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine would go on their summers off from acting in the theater. Now Lunt and Fontaine, if you don't know who they are, they were Oh my God, it, it's hard to think of an equivalent at this point of two people who try and act together. Uh, Olympia Dukakis and Louis Zorich, maybe. You know, an actor couple. And Jackson and Eli Wallach would be a little bit closer to that. But Lynn Fontaine and Alfred Lunt were bigger stars. They were huge, enormous stars of the American theater. And married, met young, married young, and then every year they'd come to Broadway and one or two things, and what they were doing, and they would act, and they would also not just go to Broadway, but they created almost that touring circuit of going all over the country, and everybody would come out to see. If you were interested in theater, you went to see Lynn Fontaine and Alfred Lunt when they came to your town. But when it came time for the summer, they went back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where, where Alfred Lunt was born. She was born, actually, in, in England. And he went to the family house, and they tried to expand it when they had more and more money that they were making. And they took this little house, and then they built a little side house, and then they added here and there, and then a place for animals and a garden and a place to... to you know, it, they turned it... They had about 100 acres, all told, I think they said at their hike. I think they're down to about 60 acres now. But it's it's just this lovely, welcoming place. I remember the uh, tour guide telling us, even as we're going in, that it was an early example of Fang Shui. They realized that um, if you curve the entryway... Now, they don't do this thing where you don't go directly in, you know, where you have to go around the side and through. That's another Fang Shui thing that people do. This has a direct entrance, but it's it's curved. And there's a circular garden sort of that you go through to get to the entrance. And it was meant <clears throat> to have this kind of welcoming feeling, in the sense that you're going into a special, relaxing, retreating place. Because when Lung Fontaine weren't in New York, he wanted to be cooking. He wanted to be in his kitchen 
serving, and he wanted to be in the garden, working, loved tending the garden. Didn't have the most green thumb, but he tried. You know. Or he was reading in their lovely library area. So groups, theater groups and, and school groups and tour groups get to come to Ten Chimneys and walk through these gracious spaces. And what's interesting is that the whole motif, the whole milieu, is Swedish because and Fontaine just fell in love with that old Swedish kind of look and the design and the, the paintings of them. So they will have, even though they weren't particularly religious people at all, uh, you go into one room and there'd be little scriptural passages, pa passages painted on the walls with um, scenes from the Old and New Testament. Again, not because they cared that much, but because that was the look that would be or would have been in Swedish homes at the time. And so it's just, it was a, just a nice, lovely space to walk through, a generous and gracious feeling. I mean, you know, I'm a middle-aged former New Yorker. I've been through times when I had very little money, been through times when I've had you know, a little, enough to live on, to live comfortably. <clears throat> never been rich, never even been close to rich. And you know, I'm, I'm one of the 99% that looks up at the 1% and goes, why? Why? Give back. Not fair. You know, I, I totally feel for that Occupy feeling. So when I come across incredibly rich people who spend their money sometimes not <laughs> so wisely or, or, or spend it on what we might consider frivolous things or light things or just, you know, they're enjoying life with their money, there's a certain amount of resentment that I have to have. There's a certain amount of looking at people with extraordinary amounts of money and going, ah, why not me? Why them? But if you can get past that in the Lundfontan thing, um, there's a f certain sense of not overspending, not being ridiculous with their money, not showing off, which is kind of important. Just making their lives as pleasant and joyful and comfortable and relaxing and whimsical as possible. And of course, they were also very giving and generous in there. I mean, they would let, when you came to Ten Chimneys, if you were a guest, like Alexander Wolcott or Catherine Hepburn or Helen Hayes, and you were staying there to visit, you wouldn't just come for the day. Nobody would fly to Milwaukee and then go out of the way to this little, you know, chalet just for a lunch. I mean, you were staying for days or weeks. The guy that got to paint all the frescoes and murals all throughout the house. I mean, he came for a couple of weeks to do one wall, and then he ended up staying two years. Now, he did a whole hell of a lot of work, but still, it was just a place to visit and hang with the Lunts in their home as they played the gracious, the ultimate gracious, gracious hosts, you know, Lynn Fontan, I mean, at the same time as being kind of down to earth and having fun, she was also a star and an actress and knew that everything that she did was basically on display and that her face and her body and her voice, every part of her was part of the image that you're going to project on or off stage. So if you went to Ten Chimneys, she would greet you at exactly the right moment. She would spy from her window upstairs and when people were coming in. 
and she would get her wig or her, her makeup, her dress, her everything just exactly right so that she could sweep down the staircase at just the right moment to greet you in just the right Lin Fontang way. And yet there's something wonderful about that too, isn't there? And so um, I want to thank certainly <clears throat> a bunch of people for making the Milwaukee trip as fun as it could possibly be, considering there's no theater to see and considering the fact that it was 185 degrees out there. But thank you certainly to Ann Siegel for, for creating that side trip as part of the American Theater Critics and working with uh, Jonathan Abarbanel, who, um, by the way, was on our Tony show last year and very cool guy. Wanted to also thank the gracious folks at Tin Chimneys, which also, by the way, works now, now that London Fontana Long Dead, as a haven for actors in the theater community. And they have readings there and they have teachings there and things like that. So it's not just lying dormant and only being used for tours. Um, it, it is sort of an, an active little part of the theater community in Milwaukee. But, but thanks to the nice folks at Ten Chimneys, it was really lovely to, to be greeted and treated so well at that space. It's just about 11.30 Mountain Time here at the University of Northern Colorado. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, the host of this program have been since we started in October of 2002. you want to find out more about the show, please go to davesgoneby.com. That's D-A-V-E-S-G-O-N-E-B-Y.com. And not only does the website tell about the show, but back episodes, hundreds of our previous episodes are archived online. You can stream them on your computer or download them to your iPods or your hard drives. Just go to our homepage, davesgoneby.com, scroll down and just click on any one of the shows that you want to listen to. And there's a whole list of all the special guests and celebrities and musicians who've appeared on the program over the years. So you might want to give uh, a look and a listen to those. Uh, what else do I want to tell you? You want to drop me an email? davesgoneby at aol.com, davesgoneby at aol.com. And, oh my gosh, I never got to finish up the sponsors of this program. I mentioned Ulit Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway, and all the wonderful the work they do of printing and copying and binding and putting logos on things and doing uh, New Year's cards and holiday cards and wedding invitations. They're right in the heart of Ulit, Long Island, about two blocks from the Ulit train station. So uh, if you go there, Tell them Dave sent you. You get 10% off any job, big or small, at Hewlett Minuteman Press. Their phone number is 516-569-5577. Area code 516-569-5577. As I said, they're right in the heart of Hewlett. They're closed on weekends during the summer, but you can get them on Monday morning at 516-569-5577. Seven, seven. This program is also brought to you by Performing Arts Insider, the Bible of Broadway. Since really the 1940s, I think 1944 was when Performing Arts Insider Theater Journal was founded. And it was a way for the industry to kind of keep tabs on itself, for everybody to know when a show was opening or closing or when it, something was rumored to come to Broadway or what casting decisions were being made. All this information was in this cool journal called um, Performing Arts Insider. It's um, still a hard copy magazine. 
It has a website, performingartsinsider.com. That's where you go to find out about it. But the actual information, all the stuff, all the good stuff about what's happening on the stages of New York, that's in a hard copy magazine. It comes to your mailbox. You can read it at your desk in your office, on the train. Um, you know, and as much as we're so used to going on the computer, clicking open two, three, four, five, seven windows to find the information and to Google this and find that. There's something really great about having an old-fashioned magazine that you're like, oh, I need a list. And the information really clearly delineated in this one very tight, readable space. That's what you get Performing Arts Insider for. So go to performingartsinsider.com. They open up Performing Arts Insider and they say, oh, so-and-so's coming to Off-Broadway. I want to have the people on The View inter them, interview them. How do I contact that actor? How do I get to the press agent in the pages of performingartsinsider.com? Proud sponsor of Dave's Gone By. We're also sponsored by totaltheater.com, a theater website that is absolutely free and chock full of theater reviews and interviews and articles. If you go to Criticopia, you can find out reviews of all the latest shows from on Broadway to places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Los Angeles and Fringe Festivals and upstate New York, all over the country, all over the world, absolutely free, totaltheater.com. And this program is finally brought to you by a shout-out to my good friend Jeff Goodman. Jeff is the uh, owner and proprietor of Fancy Schmancy Balloons. Fancy Schmancy Balloons, ooh, hold on, I just, um, I think we had a little glitch in our taping here. Forgive me, are we, are we okay? There we go, we're still running, good. Um, Fancy Schmancy Balloons, which is not just balloon animals or things like that. This is if you are having a party in the New York area and you wanna know Let's say it's a bar mitzvah and the kid loves the New York Yankees or loves the Mets or the Rockies. Well, except we're all the way over here. But, or they're into the whole vampire TV and movie stuff. Or they're into the Avengers or they want a party that's kind of like the, I don't know, the Pokemon character. Whatever it is, Jeff Goodman can make your party look like that. It can either be really, really elegant or really cool and funky, a Seinfeld-themed one, a Broadway-themed party. Call Jeff. He does balloon archways. He does the centerpieces. He'll make your party look exactly the way you want it to. And if you know nothing about throwing a party and you've got to do it, he can hook you up with the caterer and the florist and the DJ and everything you need. So give Jeff Goodman a call. Five one, um, oh, wow. Huh, we're, we're, I can't find his phone number at the moment, but I think I know it by heart. 516-776-0600. 516-776-0600. I just heard from Jeff this morning. He, he's doing really well. He's appearing in a production of Gypsy at his local synagogue, which is pretty amazing. They're, I think in Massapequa. So if you see a Gypsy out on Long Island with a bunch of uh, very, very Jewish people, Go see Jeff in Gypsy at uh, the shul in Massapequa. Anyway, it is 11.36 in the morning here at the University of Northern Colorado. You're listening to Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and uh, happy to do this program. I still have 
Inside Broadway to get to, where we do news and reviews of the theater in New York and around the country. Plus, let's see what else. I've got um, our uh, Saturday segues. And more to talk about with Milwaukee and, and beer and what Milwaukee's all about. But before I get to that, I need to give my voice a little rest. So instead of doing it at noon, I'm going to go right into the Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment. That's where we play songs by Bob Dylan throughout his career, from the earliest recordings all the way to his latest albums with rarities and bootlegs in between. Since we've been talking about Wisconsin and Milwaukee and the things to do there, gotta do some Bob Dylan songs that have to do with all of those things. So this is our little Bob Dylan Wisconsin set here on Dave's Gone By. Let's begin with... Oh, hey, what, what happened to my... Uh, Oh, there it is. Lost my little mouse there for a moment. Let's hear, um, what's the song that mentions Wisconsin? That's the best one to start off with. It would be, um, <laughs> thanks for your patience, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, how about Highway 51? I don't know if Highway 51 actually goes through Wisconsin or Milwaukee, but at least he mentions it. And so this is from the very, very first album, the Bob Dylan album. As soon as I can get this iTunes clicking open. Uh, computer kind of went to sleep on me. Come on. There you go. Here's Bob Dylan, yay. Talking about Wisconsin, yay. On Highway 51. Eventually. When it feels like playing. On the iTunes. This morning. Early afternoon. No, it's still morning. <laughs> come on! Come on, come on, come on, little iTunes. Wakey, wakey! We want to hear our Bob Dylan. Okay. Everything's good. Sorry, sorry about this. The um, computer's being a little slow and recalcitrant, and I do not know why. But hopefully it will pick itself up dust itself off, and start all over again. Um, oh, or I can take this phone call. UNC Radio, you're on the air. Hello? There's no music on the radio. I know there's no music on the radio. There's, there's um, not sure, there, there's something with the iTunes here where it's refusing to open and play for me. Bad, bad iTunes. Just sing it. Um, <laughs> sing it. Oh, wait, wait. It's go Well, wait, you want to sing along with me? This is Bob Dylan's Highway 51. I don't know the words. <laughs> Highway hmm. 51 runs right by my baby's door. But that's the only, um, the only actual uh, lyric I know. Why didn't you bring your guitar? You could play. <laughs> well, there's two different things, babe. I could have brought my guitar, but that doesn't mean I could actually play it. Just YouTube it. YouTube it. Right. Well, if I could get iTunes to play, I could get YouTube to play um, also. You okay. Bob. Oh, thank God. <gasps> but, but now I'm going to stop that because my wife is on the phone. No, I want to hear the Bob Dylan uh, No, I want to talk to you a little bit. I want to, come on, you, you, you go through the trouble of calling on the phone. Thank you very much, my love. So how are you? I'm good. It's very hot. Well, where are you? Are you in the office? Where else? Well, okay. Well, oh, 
Well, didn't they fix the air conditioning? Because Gunter Hall had a fire, a little baby one. <laughs> no, yesterday. not at the hall. I think it was outside. It was nothing. Okay. Well, yeah, but they had to shut the air conditioning and the water for half a day. Well, that's just what we do in summer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but is it still hot in the office? Is it, is it hot there? No, it's very nice. It's just hot outside. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right, because you're at a walk. Because yeah. I was bad. I, I left for the radio station, and I didn't give my wife a lift. I was naughty. Bad boy. Bad boy. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you wanted me to hear me apologize to the general public there, Ben. No, no, I want to hear the Bob Dylan. You know, it's one of my favorite segments. I enjoy that so much. And then you could sing it or play it, but play the Bob Dylan. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to sing along with the Bob Dylan. But play, oh, yeah, yeah, play but, the William Zetzinger. <laughs> I'm not playing. <laughs> you no play the William Zetzinger. <laughs> I, I I don't think there's anything in the song "The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll" that yes. has anything to do with beer. I mean, I guess it, it was somebody else's. Oh, Jeff Goodman is calling now. Ha! Huh. Now that's okay. funny. You go speak to your friend. I'm going to listen to Van Zinger. All right. Well, hold on. Hold on. All right. Well, yes. You you go listen, but I'll I want to talk to Jeff on the air if I can get him. Okay. So, go, honey. Ba- love you, baby. Thank you for calling. In. Okay. See you later. Oh, I just lost Jeff. And I just lost her. <laughs> ah, low-tech radio, ladies and gentlemen. But at least we do have our iTunes, and we've got Bob Dylan with uh, Highway 51. Runs right by my baby. Well, what happened? It was supposed to be playing Highway 51. Come on. Thank Fifty-one runs right by my baby's door Highway 51 runs right by my baby's door If I don't get the gal I'm loving Oh, I'd go down Highway 51 no more Wisconsin way down to no man's land. Well, if I should die, for my time should come.
baby's door If I don't get the girl I'm loving Won't go down Highway 51 no more Frankie was a good girl Everybody knows Paid one hundred dollars for Elvis and his studio clothes. He was a man that done it wrong. Elvis said, "I'm leaving you. Won't be gone for long. Don't wait up for me. I worry about me when I'm gone." He was a man that done it wrong. Frankie went down to the corner saloon to get a bucket of beer. Said to the bartender, has my loving man been here? He's a man, but he knows I'm wrong. Well, I ain't gonna tell you no story. I ain't gonna tell you the lie. Albert and I go with a girl named Alice Pine. He's your man, he got you wrong. Frankie went down to 12th Street, look up through the window high. She saw her Albert there, loving up Alice Pine. He was a man, he got her wrong. Pulled out a pistol, pulled out a 44. Gun went off a Rudy Toot Toot, and Alpha fell on the floor. He's a man, but he's been alone. Frankie got down upon her knees, took her Albert into her lap. Started to hug and kiss him, but there was no bringing him back. He was a man.
a man with me I don't have much to say Daylight sneaking through the window And I'm still in this old night cafe Walking to and fro beneath the moon Out to where the trucks are rolling slow Sit down on this bank of sand and watch the river flow. Wish I was back in the city, but instead of this old bank of sand, with the sun beating down over the chimney tops and the one I love so close at hand. If I had wings and I could fly, I know where I would go. But right now I just sit here so contentedly and watch the river flow. People disagreeing on just about everything, yeah. Makes it stop and wonder why. Why only yesterday I saw somebody on the street who just couldn't help but cry Oh, but this old river keeps on rolling though No matter what gets in the way and which way the wind does blow And as long as it does, I just sit here and watch the river flow It's a fairground song, it's a carnival song. Uh, just a root, a root song. Let's just sort of explain to you a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, it's all up from Florida at the start of the spring. The trucks and the trailers will be winding. Like a bullet will shoot for the carnival route. We're following in dusty old fairgrounds are calling. From the Michigan mud past the Wisconsin sun. Cross that Minnesota border, keep them scrambling. Through the clear county lakes and the lumberjack lands. We're following them dusty old fairgrounds are calling. Hit Fargo on the jump and down to Aberdeen. Cross them old black hills, keep them rolling. Through the cow country towns in the sands of old Montana. We're following them fairgrounds are calling. The white line on the highway sails under your wheels. I gaze from the trailer window laughing. Oh, our clothes they was torn, but the colors they was bright. Following them dusty old fairgrounds are calling. It's a many a friend that follows the bend. The jugglers, the hustlers, the gamblers. But I spend my time with the fortune-telling kind Following them fairgrounds are calling Oh, it's pound down the rails and it's tied down the tents Get that canvas flag a-flying Let the caterpillar spin Let the fast wheel wind Following them fairgrounds are calling Well, it's rolling the town Straight to the fairgrounds Just behind the posters that are hanging And it's fill up every space With a different kind of face Following them fairgrounds are calling. Get the gants and girls in front, get the gambling show behind. Get that old music box a banging. Get them kids' faces smiles up and down the midway aisles. We're following them fairgrounds are calling. It's a drag it on down by the deadline in the town. Hit the old highway by the morning. And ride yourself blind for the next town on time. Following them fairgrounds are calling. As the harmonicas wind in the lonesome night time Drinking red wine as we're rolling Many turn, I turn 
lesson I've learned from following the fairgrounds of calling. It's rolled back down to St. Petersburg Tie down the trailers and camp them And the money that we made will pay for the space From following them dusty old fairgrounds a-calling Seventeen long years I spent all my money on whiskey.
Let me eat when I'm hungry. Let me drink when I'm dry. Dollars when I'm hard up. Religion when I die. The whole world's a bottle and laughs, but it drowns. When a bottle gets empty, it sure ain't worth a damn.
It's that million dollar bash, ladies and gentlemen. Tapping our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment for this Saturday morning, June 23rd, 2012. Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment we do every week here where we play songs from all different times of Dylan's career, sometimes grouped around the theme. This particular one was Wisconsin in honor of my uh, trip to Milwaukee a couple of days ago. And so in that set, we heard the songs. I'm not sure what order we heard them in. But uh, let's see if I can find my MySpace page. Eh, doesn't matter. Well, let's see. I, I know we started with Highway 51, runs right by my baby's door, with the line running, up, uh, running from up Wisconsin way down to no man's land. We also heard Bob Dylan doing Frankie and Albert from the Good As I've Been To You acoustic collection. Uh, that doesn't mention Wisconsin at all. It just mentions getting a bucket of beer and, well, you know, <laughs> there's not that much more to say about Wisconsin, but yes, uh, buckets of beer are there. That's as appropriate a song about Milwaukee as any could possibly be. We also heard, do do do. Let's see, um, watching the river flow because, of course, you know, if you're positioned in the right way, you've got the river walk right in downtown uh, Milwaukee, which I was able to do in the blazing hot sun on my way to a brewery. So that I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about Milwaukee. Hot, there's the river to your left side, and then you're heading over to a brewery. Um, and we heard uh, what else? Dusty Old Fairgrounds. That's the real rarity that we played in that set. That's never been released, not even on any of the major bootlegs or anything. I was able to find it on the net. Dusty old fairgrounds. And it, you know, it's always great finding these things now. I mean, who hasn't said how amazing YouTube is? But this idea of finding things, I remember getting uh, a Bob Dylan lyric book back when I was first getting into him in my early teens. And you open up the book and there'd be all the songs from his albums and the lyrics to them. So if there was something you didn't understand or it wasn't, you know, there wasn't lyric sheets with the albums and uh, you wanted to know what he was singing or started to learn the, the words for yourselves, there it was. And then towards the end of the book, there would be all these other songs, not just poems, but actual songs, but they were never released. I mean, this is the early days before Columbia really opened up its vaults. And you'd see these, these songs like She's Your Lover Now, and, um, you know, you, you would know, Daddy, you've been on my mind because Joan Baez covered that one. And I'll keep it with mine. Ended up being on, um, you know, the first Nico album. But all these songs, it's like, wow, I wonder what those sound like. You know, what, what are the, and eventually I ended up getting a Bob Dylan songbook with music in it, with, with the chords and stuff and the, uh, whatever they call those, those five line bars that go across the page, music staff and stands and all that. And, and even then, it's sort of like, oh, cool, now i got the chords, and this is kind of how the song goes, but I'd sure like to hear it once to know what it is. Um, so it, it's pretty neat that one of those lost songs called Dusty Old Fairgrounds, uh, that there's actually a good recording of it, a bootleg recording, that eventually, I'm sure Columbia, when it gets to its official bootleg volume 713 will throw on there for everybody to hear. But at least you got to hear it here on Dave's Gone By. Dusty Old Fairgrounds and he name checks uh, Milwaukee in there. Well, he name checks Wisconsin in the line from the Michigan mud past the Wisconsin sun. 
in dusty old fairgrounds. And we heard Moonshiner, of course, on whiskey and beer. And finally, Million Dollar Bash. That is not the most known or common version of the song, the song that was released on the basement tapes. That um, is a version that you'll hear on the unofficial basement tapes, all those other recordings that Dylan and the band did at Bid a big pink and in either version you'll hear Dylan say the line with his cheese in the cash no idea what that means but you know everybody we keep talking about beer as part of this Milwaukee Wisconsin milieu but of course cheese is a big deal there too the cheese heads and the packers and all that and so that's the only song to my knowledge that Bob Dylan wrote where he mentions the word cheese You've heard it. It's right there in in Million Dollars Bash with his cheese in the cash here on Bob Dylan Sooner and Later on Dave's Gone By. It's 12.10 in the afternoon here. It is a sweltering afternoon, and we're not going to see much relief in the near future. I'm checking the uh, temperature here, and it is already, oh, good God, oh, good God. It's already about 98 degrees. Uh, but the good news is uh, it only feels like 92. There's that lack of humidity. I cannot talk this morning. There is that lack of humidity for you. Uh, but it's going up to close to 100. And then, oh my God, tomorrow they're predicting a high of 104 with chance of thunderstorms. Going down to 63 degrees in the evening. And then it's, it's virtually the same the next few, through the middle of the week, the high temperature Monday, 100. The high temperature Tuesday, 104 again. High temperature Wednesday, 99 degrees. And, and we're talking about the weather station being right at 23rd Avenue in uh, Greeley. So, oh, uh, good Lord. I, I feel for anybody being out in that rodeo stadium for the beginnings of the Greeley Stampede. I mean, or even just walking around or anything. I hope... They have a lot of tents and a lot of things covered because up until about 7 o'clock at night, it's really... I mean, I think the stampede is great. I'm glad people will go. I think, you know, God bless them if they're selling out concerts, whatever they're doing, the monster trucks, the shows they have. But between 9 in the morning and uh, 7 in the evening, not a place I really want to be. Sorry, folks. Um, but but then again, the stampede goes on for a couple of weeks, and maybe we'll have a break in the weather towards the end of this one. I don't... Oh, we have a 10-day forecast. Ha! Huh, maybe... Well, let's see. Well, I see some of those days. What's the rest of them? Oh, come on. This is just annoying. Oh, here we go. Click the mouse, Dave. Hey, look at this. On Friday, we go down to 91. All right. (laughs) And that's about as good as it gets because it starts climbing again after that. Sigh. Anywho, you're listening to Dave's Gone By. I'm Dave Lefkowitz, and it's time to go inside Broadway for news and reviews. What's happening in New York on the Rialto, Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, and well far beyond in the theater. Where's my page? Here it is. Well, I wasn't here last week. We took the week off. But um, the week before, of course, we did our big Tony show. I want to thank all the many, many guests and critics and friends who participated in the uh, 
Total Theater Tony special that we did. In case you haven't heard, in case you weren't there, in case you didn't watch the Tonys on CBS that night, hosted by Neil Patrick Harris, I'll let you know that the big winners of the 2012 Tonys are Once, that's the musical based on the film, with music by Glenn Hansard and Marketa Irglova. Uh, it won eight Tonys, including Best Musical, Musical Score, and Steve Kazee took the Best Actor in a Musical nod. Clyburn Park, which was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, also won the Tony Award for Best Play, Bruce Norris's um, play about 20 years in the history of a Chicago neighborhood, Clyburn Park. It beat out some really close competition with other desert cities there, and also um, I think Venus Hoover was on there, and Peter and the Starcatcher. So uh, congratulations to Bruce Norris on his big win. Book of a Musical went to Once. The, uh, wait a minute. That's wrong. I, I, I apologize. I made a bit of a boo-boo. Book of a Musical went to Once. Once did not win for Best Score. Best Score of a Musical went to the Disney show Newsies and Alan Menken. Apologies for that. And a uh, rev- revival of a play... Not any doubt there. Death of a Salesman won the Arthur Miller revival. However, Philip Seymour Hoffman did not win Best Actor in a play. That went to James Corden in One Man, Two Governors. Musical Revival went to the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, which I'm sure was a very sweet victory for the people who put that together and had to go through everyone from Stephen Sondheim to uh, half the theater critics in New York complaining that they were changing things around and desecrating the Gershwin originals. But, uh, you know, box office counts in this world and popularity counts and having Audra McDonald in your musical counts because she won her fourth Tony for being in Porgy and Bess. But that, that was a basic list of the Tony winners for 2012 Hope you got to see the Tony show. I was a little, I don't know, the first hour left me a little cold, I have to say. I was kind of disappointed that they opened the show with uh, a sequence from Book of Mormon, not because Book of Mormon isn't really hilarious and fun and a really good musical, but because they basically did the same number again that they did from Book of Mormon the year before. And you figure, okay, give the new kids a chance. You've got new musicals out there. Why are you doing last year's Tony winner to open your show? But hey, there's a lot of marketing and advertising involved too. And it was a fun number. I just, I don't know, is it me? Or now that they're doing it at the Beacon Theater, it kind of looks a little chintzy again. I think we got used to seeing the big Tony Awards broadcast being done at... um, well, Radio City Music Hall, which I guess if you were a little inside theater fan might have been too huge. But now looking at um, the musical numbers and the whole staging at the Beacon, it kind of feels like, oh, it kind of scaled back a bit. And I have to say the ratings on this latest Tony Award show were down. They, They were the worst in probably ever. Not that they were awful. I think CBS still won the night ratings-wise, but they were certainly lower than they have been in a long time. And I don't even think they were up against NC, um, not NC, uh, against the Major League Basketball Championships um, at this point. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if people are getting a little tired of Neil Patrick Harris. He did a, a very fine job, and redeemed himself certainly at the very very end of the show, where the last three years they always give him a number to close things out where he makes fun of 
the winners and the non-winners and the show itself. I mean, they're literally writing this song as the broadcast is going on. And so, boom, out of nowhere, a song that didn't exist three hours earlier is suddenly singing and, and doing and playing with, um, and, and it's just really funny and remarkably good. And he's just remarkably poised doing it. And so, and as the Tonys did go on, it, you, you get sucked in and you start watching and you want to see this musical number. And since I didn't get to see you know, half the shows on Broadway this past year, it was nice to see, oh, so that was what the opening number of Leap of Faith was like. That, that may not have been as bad a musical as people have said. That was, that was pretty cool to see. And oh, there's Jesus Christ Superstar starring the guy I didn't get to see because he was out sick. What did I miss? Oh, wow, he has an interesting look and voice. I guess I missed that. <laughs> and, and, and all those, those things that go through your mind when you're watching a three-hour show dedicated to the Broadway theater. Speaking of um, off-Broadway, though, we've got to say goodbye to Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage, kind of a sleeper off-Broadway hit that is closing June 30th after two years off-Broadway at Sophia's. Christine Petty, who was on this show a couple of years ago. She's currently starring with uh, Maurizio Perez. Originally, Eve Plum from The Brady Bunch starring in the show. Joyce DeWitt came into the lead role for a while. It's all about this woman giving tips on romance and dating, and it's very cute and very lightweight and a very passable way to spend 90 minutes, as thousands of people have discovered, because it ran for two years. But you only have one more week to see Miss Abigail's Guide at Sophia's in Manhattan. Cabaret alert! Cabaret alert! The Cafe Carlisle has lined up its fall lineup. Those include Judy Collins, starting us out in early September, then Andrea Marcovici, who has been doing cabaret for years and years. This is her first time coming to the Carlisle. So, uh, you know, if you're a Marcovici fan, she'll be there, I guess, in late September, early October. Then, of course, John Pizzarelli and Jessica Molaski, husband and wife, doing their musical thing, heading towards the holidays. Steve Tyrell capping it up in, um, I think, in December or early Jan. And let's not forget Woody Allen. Yep, he's, he's still doing his Monday night clarinet gig with Eddie Davis. Um, um, Monday nights at the Cafe Carlisle. And, and I'm still not used to saying that because it was Woody Allen for many, many years at a very different <clears throat> night spot. Uh, no, not Elaine's. Um, you know, where he was when they announced the Oscar for Annie Hall. He was, he was literally on stage playing clarinet. But it wasn't at Cafe Carlisle at that point. It was, um, oh, I'm sorry, it'll come to me. Or if you remember, give me a call at the radio station, 970-351-1256, 970-351-1256. I'd look it up on Google, but uh, the computer here is really, really slow. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Woody Allen, clarinet. That ought to help. Let's see how long that takes to load. Oh, yeah, it's worse than the, <laughs> worse than the iTunes. Uh, he used to play where? Come on, he used to play... Wikipedia kindly open. Well, anyway, kind of looking forward to seeing Woody Allen's new film uh, set in Rome because we're in uh, Italy a year ago. And now he's into this whole thing where he's visiting different European countries and making comedies there, which I think is very cool. Um, I mean, if I were an elderly filmmaker and I wanted to see the world a little bit, what better way to see the world for free than go traveling and making funny movies in England and you know, Paris and now 
uh, Rome. So let's see, where's um, early films, 1980s, 1990s? Come on! Uh, Academy Awards, BAFTA, Marriages and Relationships. No, no. Clever Gaggis, here we go. He used to play. Oh, come on. Well, whatever. If anybody remembers, 970 351 1256, because it wasn't a Carlisle. Um, oh, sad news coming from the Broadway world. We just lost on Thursday Richard Adler. Uh, he was 90 years old, so he's with us for a long time, and uh, what a legacy he left in really two major Broadway musicals, Damn Yankees and The Pajama Game. He and his writing partner, um, Jerry Ross, created those two shows in the 1950s. When we talk about the, the highest tier of the Broadway shows, like the Rodgers and Hammersteins and some of the Sondheim shows. And then there's that second tier, which are almost as good, but, um, you know, not quite. They were still wonderful. Let, oh, I, th I think that's Jeff Goodman on the phone. So let us put Jeff Goodman on the air. I'm just going to get him through. Did you know? Je Jeff Goodman, hello. Yeah, hello. Jeff, this is Dave Lefkowitz at Dave's Gone By. How are you? Who is this? Ha, 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 ha. Talking to Jeff. <laughs> the owner and proprietor of Fantasy Schmancy Balloons, Jeff Goodman, also a theater critic for many years. And now you're an actor? Well, I mean, you've well, done acting before, but but tell us, tell us, tell us. Well, first of all, can, can you speak up a little bit, or is there just a bad connection? Uh, it's a bad connection. And oh, well, the it's the board. I, I have to yell to be heard by people on the phone. Okay. <laughs> no, I hear you fine. Oh, I'm great. the one who has to yell. Yeah. Okay, I'll put the volume up on the phone. I'll put Please my do. hearing aids on. So, but you're you're doing a musical? I am. How interesting. Tell, tell, tell. Well, the Book of Mormon called. <laughs> yeah. And said they didn't want me. Mm. Then Phantom the Opera called and said, don't even bother. So finally, after about 300 phone calls, this little synagogue in Long Island says, we need you to do Gypsy, but we don't want you to sing. Hmm. And so you're not Herbie. Who who are you playing in Gypsy? I am playing many, 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 many roles. I start out with playing Uncle Jocko, which is the clown in the beginning. Uh-huh. Then, oh, and by the way, they also uh, got me into changing all the scenery. <laughs> well, yeah, they know what they've got in you. They got a free singing designer. They're not stupid. Exactly. Yeah, who do you think built the rose? That big rose that comes down at the end? Whoa. It's all out of glitter. So Seven and a half pounds later. Now, hold on. Where is this being done? What's that? Where is oh, this? It's being, it's being done at Temple B'nai Torah, <laughs> which I believe is in Wantor. It's on Jerusalem Avenue in Wantor. In, in Long Island. And how yes. many performances? When are, when are you doing it? We have four performances. We opened last weekend. Oh, I would not suggest anyone go see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely would run from this. <laughs> if, if you have to clean your closets, do that. What, well, why no, are you saying... It's a miracle. We opened last, last Saturday, and things were amazing. I was shocked. Like, there's one little girl, there's a girl who runs in and out, uh, one of the um, Hollywood blondes. Uh-huh. Well, first of all, we hardly rehearsed. I had one rehearsal in, April, in May, and then the, 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 the only time we 
even did two rehearsals in a row was the week before we opened. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, everyone's very busy. And I asked them, why can't we rehearse on Mother's Day? And they said, it's Mother's Day. I said, well, I don't really think you spend all day with your mother. <laughs> but that was, that was the excuse. And then, God forbid, we do it on Memorial Day. Well, who, <clears throat> I mean, who's directing? Actually, this it's a nice guy. I can't, don't know his last name. It's, oh, wait, I think I may have. No, I don't. I think I threw out the program. Um, his name is Tom. He's actually really good. Oh. He's really trying hard. The problem is the people involved. <laughs> the producer doesn't seem to want to rehearse. All I kept doing is I kept I emailed him stuff. I said, you know, I don't think we're really rehearsing enough. I don't think people, I mean, up until was it two, one or two days before the opening night, no one knew their lines. Oh, come so on. Swear. As a matter of fact, I think um, the last rehearsal before opening, they completely skipped wherever we go. They skipped the song. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they went, oh, it's the reprise. We better go back and do that. Oh. People go back and forth pages. If you know Gypsy, it's a laugh riot. You well, know? yeah, it's very funny until the last ten minutes, you know. No, no, no. I mean, no, if, if you know Gypsy, and you, it's a laugh riot how bad this thing is. Oh, oh, dear. I mean, just, you know, the things that, that they, we constantly, in my head, I'm turning forward two pages, going back two pages. <laughs> because, oh, I was going to tell you, so I play Jack of the Clown, then I go to Mr. Goldstone. Oh, by the way, they yeah. don't have any of the props from Goldstone. I get an invisible spare rib. <laughs> no plates, no... Uh, we're right next to a kitchen. There's not a plate in it, not a fork, no knife. You know, have a, I'm glad there's a chair when they say have a chair. <laughs> Opening night, I finally got a, 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 a styrofoam egg roll. Because, <laughs> you know, it's so hard to find egg rolls on Long Island. <laughs> this, this, you know... This, have some air, Mr. Goldstein. Well, well, what? what? There's only a Chinese takeout every 50 feet. <laughs> and they roll of a dollar. Oh my! What what made you say the show must go on? Why didn't you or anybody else just say, you know, this could be embarrassing? Why are we doing it? I don't. Well, when I talk to the producer, he tells me it's okay. He had a good feeling the show was going to be fine. <laughs> it was going to be great, and it's a, it's a fundraiser for my synagogue, and of course they sold a lot of tickets to the members. Did they really? Well, Yes, yeah, historian, the rabbi, <laughs> who hilariously, oh my God, I, I love her. I really do like her. So we have a female rabbi. Yes, yeah, so, so we out here, actually. But And I had asked her two years ago, I said, you know, the perfect musical to really do it at um, the synagogue would be the musical 13. They like to find children's musicals. Oh, yeah. And so 13, you know what she told me? What? And, and I'm a little peeved about this. She goes, well... I don't really like it because at the end he um, doesn't he kiss his girlfriend at the end and she's not Jewish. I said, <sighs> oh, okay. you know, and at the time I said, okay, well, you don't want inter interreligional, what is it, inter whatever kissing. Well, they're and also underage. Then but the next year we decide to do a show about a stripper. <laughs> That's right. Come you to know? think of it, I know. Yeah. See, I, I would avoid 13 just because you have to deal then with, you know, age-appropriate actors. No, but they like to do, they do, a, they, every year they do a kid's show. Oh, Surprisingly, oh, oh. last year we did Annie. Huh, clever. Oh. And, and this year they're doing Susical. Okay. This coming year. 
So they like to do children's musicals, which is fine. You know, I'm not going to look at them, watch them, but, you know. So, so Jeff, tell me, tell me, tell me. You've already done one or two performances of this gypsy, right? Two. Two. How did the audience react? The, well, of course, it's the rabbi. They love her. So, and it surprisingly went on well. There's, I was going to tell you, there's a little girl comes in and out. Never, ever before opening night did she even make her, the, the, her entrance. She'd always forget. I mean, she just completely missed her mark, and she was terrible. Yeah. Opening night, the girl was terrific. Huh. Terrific. I couldn't believe it. It was a little Jewish miracle. <laughs> a little gypsy miracle. I call it gypsy, J-E-W-P-S-Y. Maybe your show will last eight days and eight nights. Maybe. Uh. Please, God, no. It's, it's mercifully over tomorrow. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did it get better the second night? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it went back to, you know, we had an audience of like 30. And it, it got back to it, you know, because everyone was, I think it was all adrenaline that got opening. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. It was all adrenaline-fueled, and then everyone just was too overconfident, I guess, the second performance. Oh, Except man. for me, I was nervous as all hell. Well, he, but here's the other question. I mean, Gypsy, if it's really well-directed with great actors and everybody knows what they're doing, right, and you're doing mm -hmm. the songs, runs about two hours and 45 minutes to three hours. You guys, does the thing run like four hours? I thought it would, but for some reason, maybe they cut a lot. They used the script from the TV movie, so I think that they cut a lot of stuff. Ah, uh -huh. okay. Was wondering Which about that. I think that. was kind of smart. They, I, they cut Louise, didn't they? <laughs> well, I wish. <laughs> oh. Ooh. <laughs> Rawr! What's wrong with Louise? Let me tell you, I tried to be as nice as I could. Nice as I could to the 17-year-old girl. Uh-oh. I tried to be nice to everyone. I held my tongue. I don't tell them what I did for a living. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever, volunteerism. But, you know, and I didn't say anything, but this girl backstage, I'd say something to her. I'd say, oh, nice. You did nice. I mean, she actually had a really good work, work ethic. Of all the people, she had a good work ethic and stuff like this. But she'd be backstage, and I'd say something, and she would roll her eyes and ignore me. Well, I, I do that all the time, too, Jeff. You know that. I, yeah, but you have you at least have credentials, and you're not doing it in Wantaw. <laughs> you're not the diva of Wantaw. So, and then she would shush me backstage, you know, before the show. Shh, shh. It's like, and she'd tell me to be professional. I'd go, what? <laughs> and, then, and then one and then Sunday... Uh -huh. She finally broke it. She said something to me, and I said, Listen, you, you little high school girl. I said, First of all, I'm old enough to be your father. You should respect me for that. I said, But I have credentials that you have no idea about. And I just tore her a new one. And, of course, what was our audience? All her friends on Sunday. <laughs> but she's horrible. She's so not sexy. Everyone says that they go, Could you get a less sexy gypsy or oh, a Louise? <laughs> when she takes, I'm telling you. Because I also played the, the, the burlesque theater owner. Yeah. So it's like, I have no, I sit on stage and I go, because I yell, do something and take something off. And it's like, please, I'm going to put things back on. <laughs> but, um, but really, I just sit there and I go, why on earth would I even let her go on for a second form? She is so not sexy. She doesn't move sexy. She just, you know. You know, you know what I love about this conversation? We're talking with uh, my old friend Jeff Goodman. And, and we had a really nice interview. Who are you er calling old? 
Er, earlier in this show, we had we interviewed Dakin Matthews, who's this veteran actor. He's been on Broadway. He's on Broadway now in The Best Man, starring with some of the most famous people you've ever heard of. And you asked him about McKean, all the people. Who's recovering? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, you know, you ask him about the. Um, all the people that he's worked with over the years, and you know, you know, it's, it's always just generic, nice things to say, as most actors will, because you right. never know when you're going to be working with people again, and you know, you only remember the good stuff and all that. So, right. you know, a good a good interviewer like Howard Stern will really dig, and he'll get you know the real dirt. So, uh, yeah, I, I do a typical normal interview with Dakin Matthews. He was very nice, but you know, no real, no dirt at all. Nothing really that interesting about all the people that he mentions. I get you on the air, and you start pissing on a seventeen-year-old girl, <laughs> and I all your you and you're truth. still in the show, and you're, you're you're criticizing everybody. I love it. I made them all gifts. I even made her a gift. But I just don't like her. <laughs> and, and really, I just told her, I, I really did. And honestly, and you know me, because it was actually, I was angry at her, yeah. but it was all for good for her. And I told her, I said, listen, you have, you know, it's more, it's, you, you don't need talent to succeed in this business. You have to be a nice person. You have to get along with people so they want to work with you. And I told her, I said, your work ethic is great. You, you know, I didn't say anything about the talent. <laughs> but I just told her her work ethic was great, but she's just miserable to deal with. <laughs> and, and so you didn't tell her that she has the sex appeal of a rhinoceros, no, essentially. That's not. I. What, she, she can't help it. Oh, I know. I know. You know <laughs> what I mean? She can't help it if all her boyfriends are gay. <laughs> she doesn't understand these things. <laughs> She'll learn. She'll learn. She will learn. She'll be an embittered lesbian by the time she's thirty-seven. You know. <laughs> oh, I hope not. I hope for all the women out there, she's not. Oh, out. So, uh, you know what, Jeff? Go all the way. What's her name? Where does she live? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. I forget her name. What was it? I even made her something with her name on it. I can't remember. Perry, I think, with an I. <laughs> Maybe a heart on it. <laughs> well, that's the only oh, heart you know, on she'll I, ever give a guy, you know, I'll tell you that. What? Well, you know me. I don't really care if you like me or not, but I'm going to be honest. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. And you don't even have to. And you're a terrible interviewer, and I, you get all the truth out of me. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I, love I know. You. I know. I know. So I can't, I can't be mean to people I really like. I uh, mean, uh, I oh, I can. Miss doing, I, I miss doing the show with you. That's that's one of the few things I miss in life. Well, come on and visit Colorado. Come on, down. you you go to you Vegas told all me the time. You wouldn't let me stay in your house. Remember? Well, yeah. That's about, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we have a garage. You can stay in the garage. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and what would I do with Julia? Oh, how is that your dog? Maybe it's my girlfriend. Your what? What? No, it's my dog. Okay, okay. Ooh. <laughs> She's right here, too. But she won't talk to you. She doesn't really bark that uh, much. Jeff, Jeff, um, you got to talk into the, uh, the phone. I am talking into the phone. That's better. I know how to talk into a phone. I'm not stage talking to you. You were mumbling. You were turning upstage. You were giving no, us I your wasn't. upstage side. I haven't moved. <laughs> I'm sitting here in a chair sweating. It, oh, it, I thought the weather broke in New York. I thought it's nice today. It did, but I was working like crazy cleaning up. All right, now, Jeff, do you mind if I ask the, the ultimate drum roll personal question? Sure. Because the last time we had you on the show, you were, you know... You had dropped quite a bit of weight. Uh, you, you, were, you were doing a lot better. Mm -hmm. So, and it was, it was past, I think, the 100-pound mark weeks and weeks ago. 
when we last talked. Have you been a good boy? Have you plateaued? Have you lost more? Where are you at? I am down 130. I'm sorry I didn't give a drum roll for that. L let me do it now. Oh, sorry. Mazel tov, 130, man. Very nice. Yeah, but there's still ways to go. Well, yes. Well, yes, I mean, I, but I saw Trust you... Me, one of my friends showed me pictures from the show. I said, oh, I am still a fat pig. Okay, nice. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, actually, on your Facebook, you have pictures. It's so cool that you put up pictures of you and Gypsy. And yeah, you're still... You're a big guy, but... You know, 130, that's a whole human being that you have lost right there. Well, I was really tipping the scale at about mm, 430, 440. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so now... I don't know, my scale stopped at 410. Hmm. But but so. now, have you, have you seen the other side of 300? Have you gone... Yes, it, of course. Well if, you, well, if you lost 130 pounds and you were 440, you haven't. Oh, well, I don't know. That's, I just, you know... I just I just take everything from about um, four twenty. Okay, so that you're for under three hundred now. Free if they were there. You, I you don't know. I never. I I wasn't going to a truck stop to get weighed. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but but congratulations. And by the way, if you yeah. notice, I will talk badly about myself as well as other people. I don't just trash other people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm like that too. I'll I'll tra you know, I start with myself and then I work outward. Oh, it's I think the locus. only way you can trash other people, because I know tons of people who will trash other people, and you say one nasty thing, one kind of thing to be funny about them, and they get all upset. Hmm. Do I so know I anybody always... like that? I don't know. What? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Me? No, 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 no. I think most people are like that. Yeah, I know. Like, boy, a little criticism. Even if it's in jest, they get all upset. So what else is new, Jeff? Have you been to um, Thailand again recently? No, no, I haven't. I decided this year I may not. I, you know, I was there in January, so I don't oh. know. Oh, no, it's there last, um, last in October. So I'm not sure because I, I, I'm busy cleaning the house, fixing the house up to, to sell it here in New York so I can move to my house in Las Vegas. That's right. Now you you do have the house Fort now. You bought in Nevada, actually. What? You bought the house in Nevada. You own it. Mm -hmm. So you so now it's being rented. That's great. That's that's yes, so cool. I'm sorry. And I've lovely tenants. I like my m Mr. Rick, my tenant. Mm-hmm. His last name begins with a Q. Can you imagine? Q. Interesting. How many people do you know? Well, Quincy, Quin Quimby, Quinlan. I have no idea. Quarantine, quinine. Quizzling. I think it's cute. With a Q. <laughs> Kulowitz. I don't know. Kustein. No, but he goes to a lot of girlfriends. Every oh. time I go, there's a new girlfriend. But I like I like the original one, so I'm hoping she's coming back. Louder, louder, Jeff. Can't hear you. Oh, I said I was mumbling. I'm sorry. There you go. Because I didn't want everyone to hear. So just <laughs> you. <laughs> I said, I, I liked his first girlfriend. I really liked her. And then when they broke up, I was a little sad. I met his new girlfriend. I went, oh, that was a mistake. Then they broke up, and he got a new girlfriend. Now he's, the old girlfriend has come back. Oh. So I don't know, but I don't know if she's there to stay, but I like her. So I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for her. Aww. I'll give them a little. If he takes her back, I'll give him a little off on the rent. <laughs> so if you're listening, Rick, that's the way it is. I'm sure he's listening. Everybody listens to this show. Of I mean, course, Rick, take Christine back. 
25 bucks off the rent. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> big macha. I can't That's a reminder that both Jeff and I are Jewish, so there you go. That's right. So what else has been what has been new? We only have another couple of minutes with Jeff Goodman. What else has been new and exciting in the life of Jeffrey Goodman? No, no, I'm just clean I'm cleaning my house, I'm fixing it up, I'm building a deck, I'm doing mm-hmm. all sorts of things. I'm, I'm very handy. That's wonderful. Well, I, we but know I you are because you run fancy schmancy balloons and you do well, all that these means parties. I'm crafty, not necessarily handy. But it turns out one of, I, I found a realtor I really like. I mean, mm-hmm. we're not listing it yet, but she keeps coming back to take a look and said, fix that, do that, you know, get the pest out of your house, you know, maybe put a ceiling up, you know, minor things. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful. I think, I think the way you've turned your life around in the last two years is pretty oh, it took amazing. Me 50 years. Amazing, huh? Yeah. I mean, I mean from, from the place that you were physically and mentally, yeah. uh, no. well, I guess three years ago, three, four years ago, to you know the, the progress that you've made now. Oh yeah, I, I always tell people I hit my all-time low in 2007-2008. Right. Which is, by the way, when we were doing our show together on, the, on Long Island Radio. Well, come on. Let's face it. That was an all-time low. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> when the highlight of the week is doing a radio show with you, you know something's <laughs> a problem. <laughs> well, I have to say it was a highlight of my trip to New York last March uh, to be able to see you, to see how well you're doing, to see that you look so much better. Um, I must say it was the highlight of your life to do a show with me. Uh, I don't know if it was the highlight. so much better with me on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I do miss a co-host, man. I mean, uh, you know, I like to... The problem is when I'm alone, and I, I, I heard it today when I'm doing my spiel about Milwaukee and, and being on the air, and I talk and I talk, and some of it's interesting, and sometimes I just know, oh, I'm going to get to something interesting if I could just get there. But I ramble a bit, and I go, and I go, and it's like when you have that other person in the room, it's somehow different. You have to be sharper. You kind of have to... You have the give and take, and I do miss that. I think it would be a better show if I, if I still had a co-host. It's yeah. just easier, I, you know, doing the TV show with Charlie, it's always easier doing it with someone else. See, it's someone to bounce off of and someone to, if they hear it's going poorly, then they'll just change the subject or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or so, you, what are you doing, what are you getting at? <laughs> <laughs> and that, but, that is uh, helpful. And sometimes I used to get mad at you because, you know, I would be trying to make a point and then you'd be veering me off. I'm like, no, wait, you, let me make my... Da, da, da. But, but is for that the most why you part. locked me out of the booth all those times? <laughs> well, it was also tr- trying to keep you awake, because you would be so exhausted, and we'd be doing a show at, like, midnight, 1 a.m., you know, keeping the show going. I, those overnights were so hilarious. <laughs> I mean, really. I'm not Who even takes- talking about the show we did at that university, where we were yeah. literally the overnight. I'm talking when we stayed late on... Um, the, the other oh, station. Oh, when we stayed late at the WMMO? Yeah, right. And then it would go past... Can we mention these names or no? I don't want to. I don't want to give them, uh, you know... I want to give them... No one listens to that radio station anyway. I don't even know if it's still in business. Yeah, it's still there. They're, they're still Are there. they? Yeah. I'm, I'm assu- I, I assume. They still have a website as far as I know. <laughs> you don't even look at their websites. Who do you think else does? True. True. So, but uh, I mean, they gave me my start. I can't, I can't say look, it, that much it about that. Fine. But it's just, you know, people weren't as nice as they should be. But then people real rarely are. True. You know, there's a life they lesson never appreciate for everyone. You and me. I'm sorry. What was that? 
people don't appreciate us. We're so freaking talented. Well, I I think so. <laughs> I think so too. I think you're the best co-host. And don't and you? what? Sorry. I said, don't you? I think you are the best co-host too, Jeff Goodman. No, you're supposed to say I think I'm the best co-host too. Oh, I think. Oh, I. Bagam bum cha. Hey, ha. Okay, we're gonna wrap it up with Jeff Goodman here on Dave's Gone By. It's twelve forty-five in the afternoon, Mountain Time. Jeff, I want to wish you all the best. I'm gonna be back in New York in August, so I hope to see oh, you then. Good, well, should I send you a video of the show, by the way? Of what show? Oh, oh they're, they're videoing the gypsy. <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> oh yes. It's so embarrassing. You must. You I'm must. by playing Mama Rose. It could be like the moose murders of this. Oh, by the way, I must tell you, after the funniest thing. Yeah. You Now hold yourself, because you're going to fall off the chair. W- what should I hold? Okay. What, what, well, you hold whatever part you want to hold. Oh, yeah. Some parts are a little too small, so don't bother. <laughs> but um, they were talking open, after opening night. They, you know what they want to do next year? They were saying, oh, you know what we're going to do next year? What? Rent. <laughs> yeah, oh. we can't kiss people of different religions, but that's okay. AIDS, gay, all that. <laughs> very, very, you know. Oh. And they'll never do it. Are you kidding? Rent. What, that... but some guy wants to do Les Mis. I said, good, we should really have a six hour show. <laughs> well, I they can cut the that one. Gypsy. Uh, oh, man. What's that? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just picturing it. I mean, I guess they want to use young people, which is good, but. Uh, Yikes. No, they don't have that many. They don't have that many people over fourteen or fifteen. Over or uh, what? What do you mean? They don't. We have a lot of children. Yeah. Like all the children in the first scene, and they all love me. By the way, uh-huh. they haven't learned to hate me yet. <laughs> well, because you're, you're jolly. Kid, you know, this yeah. little kid in the talent show. Yeah. So they, you know, they like to use little kids because they don't have a lot of, you know. High schoolers and middle schoolers. So, oh, I see. So, yeah, but I would figure also because it's a synagogue, the basic constituency, even of the actors, is like, you know, 75 plus. Well, no, you have to remember, it has, it's 75 plus. Well, we could always do the, the, the Olivia Duka- Olympia Dukaka shows. But um, <laughs> it's 75 plus, but we also have that Bar Mitzvah contingent, the under 13 crowd. Right, and so. that's what they like to tap into because, like all community theaters, they like to do something that's going to star all the younger people, so the parents and the grandparents buy tickets. They could do "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." They could probably get away with that one. Um, yeah, I guess, but they're not enough cast members. Oh, oh, they need also a big kind of a. I guess yeah. they want to use a lot of people. I gotcha. Oh I mean, boy, have you ever seen Annie with forty orphans? Everyone's an orphan. <laughs> I mean, you know, Oliver, another good oh, one. Of course, Oliver, certainly. Yeah. You know? We haven't done that yet, but I'm sure it's a coming. <laughs> I don't know. I think you guys should do Pacific Overtures. Really stretch yourself. <laughs> Welcome, America, please. Hello. <laughs> Tons of yellow makeup. Uh, you guys can do it, you know. I would lo- I'd love, I love to so. see Well, it. we're a very talented bunch. Well, Jeff, you have to promise to send me a copy of the video. Of, um, if, if I can get a copy of it, sure if, I will. If, of course, if. Um, They're selling it. I'm not buying it. Trust me. <laughs> well, sneaking like a, at least an audio thing so I can play clips on the show. So I can, I can hear 
how gypsy well, sounds. Enough. I'll have them send you a DVD or whatever. Yeah. I'll say, oh, I have a radio show interested in doing it. The rabbi will go right into that. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> well, I'm just, I, I started giggling like she's Charles Nelson Riley. really quite nice. She's really lovely. I'm sure, and I'm she's sure. she's not horrible, but she didn't learn the role till the night before. Oh, well, yeah, oh, you can... you can engaged the night before we opened, too. You can learn Mama Rose in one night. You know, it's, it's, it's a simple part. It's, it's only in, the scene, in a couple of scenes, right? There you go. All right, Jeff, I've got to wrap it up. It's, it's almost 10 to. It's wonderful talking to you. Congratulations on all the good things that are happening. Congratulations on all the, the bad theater that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it closes Sunday. Buy your tickets soon. There's only a few seats left. The Wantaw Beit, what is it, Beit Israel Shul? B'nai Torah. B'nai Torah Shul, their version of Gypsy. Get it while you can. 7.30 tonight. It's 3 o'clock tomorrow. Oh, Don't say it didn't warn you. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye now. <laughs> Bye.
Do I even have to? Uh, do I even have to mention who that was? That's, of course, Ethel Merman, late in her career, still knocking it out of the park with "Everything's Coming Up Roses" from the musical *Gypsy*, not the production that is apparently being done at Temple Benet something in Wantaw, Long Island. But if you want to see uh, something that, that promises to be the most unique gypsy ever, you probably want to go get down there to that shul in Wantaw and go see it with Jeff Goodman playing various parts. I want to thank Jeff Goodman for being in the neighborhood with us. Uh, I'll also do the thank yous in a couple of minutes, but in our remaining moments of Dave's Gone By. This oh, oh, we have another caller. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on, caller. I'm putting you through the board. Uh, hello, caller. Well, that, there was our caller. Anyway, um, ba 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 ba. I did want to tell you about some of the shows that I saw inside Broadway, um, or, well, actually very far away from Broadway in our Inside Broadway segment. They're doing uh, the season now at the Little Theater of the Rockies, which is the summer season at the University of Northern Colorado. Shows are done either in the big Langworthy Theater in Fraser Hall or the uh, 99-seat black box space that is the Norton Theater. And so they've done three shows so far. I've had the chance to see all of them. Very nice job on The Boys Next Door, which is a play about a bunch of um, mentally... Some are retarded, some just have real serious mental issues and difficulties, all living in a kind of a group home, and they're presided over by a guy who kind of looks out for them and does some of their shopping and kind of makes sure that they're doing okay living on their own outside of an institution. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's a heartfelt play. And it, what it lacks sometimes in craft or, or other things, it does make up in the fact that this guy who wrote it really cared about the issues involved and the people involved. And so, you know, you go with it for that. And there's also a lot of humor in it, and it is kind of touching in the second act. And there are two really good scenes that follow right one up against each other in the second act that really make the show. Uh, One involves kind of a sweet, tentative romance between um, one of the residents and also a girl who comes to one of the, the dances that they have every week. And then a really terrifying scene between one of the more seemingly functional members of the home and his father coming to visit after many, many years. And, you know, just seeing where the psychosis comes from. And scary, scary scene. Very very well done in that production, directed by Tom McNally. Um, Definitely worth seeing. Also saw The 39 Steps which is that spoofy version of the Hitchcock film that they brought into Broadway a few years back and actually succeeded on Broadway. Then they moved it to an off-Broadway theater for a few more months so more people could still see it. And it was really inventive and clever in the way that it was staged in New York. It was was as much about the gags and the storyline as it was about the way they would recreate the motion of a train just by having boxes in front of each other and things passing by on the screen or the way the light would shine down in different intervals. And so it was a very enjoyable piece in New York. Not quite so much here. I think they did it in the wrong theater. Uh, Probably did not have a choice. They should have put it in the Norton. Instead, they put it in the Langworthy, which is just too big for it. Which is sort of weird because 
I'm talking about a show that they did on Broadway in a theater that would have been about as big as the Langworthy. And yet, somehow, you know, they have a projection screen in the Langworthy, but it's only sort of there in the middle, and sometimes it's more distracting, and sometimes they're doing little wordplay gags that are not as funny as they need to be for the screen to still be there. I don't know. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and wonderful job by Ken Womble, who has been very helpful to me over the past couple of years at UNC. He played Richard Hannay, sort of the hero, this middle-aged Englishman who kind of inadvertently gets involved in a mystery thriller scary adventure. Uh, and he's, he's really fine in the show. Uh, also, pretty good cast all around, too, and, and some tour de force rubber-legged dancing from one of the other actors there. But I don't know, I, I just, maybe having seen it twice in New York and having it here be more cute than hilariously funny most of the time and feeling it so removed on that big stage, I, I think that took something away from it. So marginal recommendation from me on that, but it, it's already closed. That's only running, uh, or has only run a couple of performances. What is still going up and is playing for the rest of this weekend and then coming back in another week or two as part of the Little Theater of the Rockies season, is their production of Next to Normal. This is a musical that uh, won the Pulitzer Prize and the Tony Award on Broadway, I think in 2010. And it starred Alice Ripley, who was a guest on my program just a couple of months ago. And she played a housewife, mother who is really at the end of her rope and not just like typical cutesy Barbara Sa uh, Streisand up the sound box, sand box, excuse me, kind of crazy, but really clinically pushing towards uh, schizophrenia, manic depression, crazy. And the way that her husband and her family try to help her and doctors try sometimes to help her, or sometimes they're doing more harm than good. One of the wonderful things about the show is that um, it's through most of it, it's always the lesser of two evils. You can take these pills, but and if you do, they're going to help you in some ways, but then they're going to have these side effects, or this will be the problem. You won't feel like yourself. So, okay, so she can disregard, and she can flush the pills down the toilet and feel like herself again, except herself is going really, really crazy and has this terrible incident that happened years ago that sort of flipped the switch, and she will never come back fully to a normal human being. She'll be lucky to get next to normal in some ways. And then other choices that... that and, and it's a pretty downbeat musical, very lively, very <clears throat> engaging, and certainly pockets of humor and comedy in it. But at the same time, it's, it gets progressively rough. I mean, when you see the second act opening with a hospital gurney, <laughs> you, you know that you're not in the land of guys and dolls here. But what I, what I have to say is that Unlike 39 Steps, which worked better in New York than it did here, this worked so much better for me on this Norton's theater space than it did in New York. I did not like the way it was staged on Broadway. It was a lot of girders and beams and people running up and down staircases. And there was so much going on that you were really kind of isolated from these people who were isolating you know, themselves from each other. I guess there was a, a metaphorical thing about the set design of the New York show because everybody's in their own little cubicle. But here in the Norton, you, you can't build sets like that. It's just going to be this round playing space. And if you need a table and chairs, you pull out a table and chairs and then they go away. 
you know, if you need little things to represent the place that you are, be it a high school gym or outside somewhere or a doctor's office, okay, that's it. It's a chair. It's a mirror. That's what, and then it's the family and the configurations in the space. And I think John Leonard, who is the director of the show, did a fantastic job. It's very intimate and superbly staged musical. And I've got to give a, a shout out to uh, Megan Van de Hey. She's playing the mother, Diana, of this family who's, who's going crazy. And she just, um, she's got the voice for it. I mean, even Alice Ripley has pitch problems. Uh, Megan Van de Hey doesn't. Even when she has to cry while singing, which only Bernadette Peters can do, or, or so I thought. Um, she, she's really believable all the way through. You cannot stop watching her. You're watching her movements, her expressions. Um, I, I would have to say that playing her husband, Matthew Herrick, he sings very well. He tries hard. He's just not in her league as an actor. I, I was unfortunate he showed that also when they did The Music Man back last summer, I guess it was. He, he's perfectly fine. He's very personable, handsome guy, nice head of hair, very nice singing voice, but he just... It, he's, he's, there's something missing there. There's an intensity. There's a something in the eyes that's just not there as an actor. And it kind of leaves him a little bit behind some of the other members of the cast. I'm, I'm just honestly saying there. So, but the show itself and the, the two young people are fine and you really are gripped and there were people crying in the audience through most of the second act. It's a very powerful, gripping piece. And one of the things that I can say, especially when I heard it in New York or listened to the cast album, was not so taken with the score. There's some very good writing in it. There's some terrific lyric writing. There's also some pretty prosaic rhyming and li lyric writing as well. But one song did jump out at me yesterday where I really was like, oh, wow, this is a really good number and a very tuneful number too. So let's hear from the Broadway production uh, if I can get my iTunes going again. This is um, Jennifer Damiano and Alice Ripley and Aaron Tveit playing again daughter, mother, and son in Next to Normal on Broadway. This is Superboy and the Invisible Girl on Dave's Gone By. Inside Broadway. Superboy and the Invisible Girl Son of steel and daughter of air He's a hero, a lover, a prince She's not there Superboy and the invisible girl Everything a kid ought to be He's immortal, forever alive Then there's me I wish I could fly And magically appear Fly far away from here Superboy and the invisible girl He's the one you wish would appear He's your hero forever, your son He's not here, I am As much as I can 
take a look at the invisible girl Here she is clear as the day Please look closely and find her before she fades away Superboy and the invisible girl Son of steel and daughter of air He's a hero, a lover, a prince She's not there She's not there She's not there She's not there Exciting song from Next to Normal, Superboy and The Invisible Girl and really of the three shows that I've seen so far at Little Theatre of the Rockies, far and away, the one that you must see and must get tickets to is um, Next to Normal. It's really a terrific job on a musical that I way underrated when it was playing in New York. Wasn't thrilled with the Broadway production, kind of, I guess, resentful that, ooh, it won the Pulitzer, ooh, it won the Tony too, and uh, you know, the score isn't that great, da, 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 da. No, it, it really is a fine piece of work. If I have just one caveat about the show itself, which, by the way, was composed um, by Tom Kitt with a book and lyrics by Brian Yorkie. It's just that the last five minutes, it's almost a little too hopeful, <laughs> which is a weird thing to say about a musical, you know, because even Carousel, which take you, takes you to the depths, you know, there, there's a certain sort of sense of hope and fulfillment, and that's why it's so touching at the end. But um, this particular, even Swingy Todd kind of leaves you sort of well, no, it really doesn't. It's a pretty desperate show. But with this one, you know, all these things have changed and all these bad things have happened and then a lot of inevitable things have happened. And then when things finally clear up, everybody's, oh, the sun's going to shine and, you know, uh, I don't know, a little too rosy. I think they producers may have leaned on the writers of the musical to, to give us something to hang on to that isn't just, oh my God, the family's going to be in this particular state and the husband's here and the wife's here and etc. Didn't need that. I think they, they could have ended the musical like two, three, four minutes earlier on a really downbeat note and it would have just been an absolute knockout punch. Even so, go see it at the Norton Theater. It's playing today. Uh, well, tonight it's playing tomorrow afternoon and then they've got another week of performances coming through. You must see next to normal at Little Theater of the Rockies. Well, um, can't believe I'm done. It's already after one o'clock in the afternoon. Planned all these things to talk about and play beer songs about Milwaukee and in a good way. You know, between all the phone calls and, and everything else, we ran out of time. So, so, you know, it's always good when you have too much that you can't fit in rather than not enough and you're just kind of playing for time. But I do need to do some thank yous and say hi to some friends in the neighborhood. So thank you so much to uh, Jeff Goodman for calling into the show. <laughs> Go see him and Gypsy <laughs> at Benet Terrible in Wantaw. Um, also want to thank so much Alana Karpoff of... Jeffrey Richards Associates for helping line up our interview with Dakin Matthews. My goodness, go see Dakin Matthews uh, now through September 8th on Broadway in Gore Vidal's The Best Man. He's really a fine actor. And again, if you heard the voice, if you heard me talking to him, you don't know who he is, just go online. You'll see his face and you'll immediately recognize him from a zillion TV shows and movies as well as the theater that he has done. So thank you so much to Dakin Matthews for being in the neighborhood. Thank you to Joyce Weil, my beloved and adorable wife, for calling in and also for all her love and support all the time. 
And thank you to Sam Wood, who is um, the general manager of this radio station, for allowing me to do Dave's Gone By every week, every Saturday morning from 10 until 1. Thanks again to Ann Siegel for uh, helping organize that whole Milwaukee trip. Oh, and want to give a shout-out didn't even get to mention it, to Rabbi Saul Solomon. He usually does a uh, rabbinical reflection here, but did not have time to write one this week, unfortunately. Well, Rabbi Saul is also prepping his one-man show again to come back to New York. It was such a hit when he did it in March off-off-Broadway that he's bringing it back to, this time, Midtown Manhattan. Shalom Damek, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon, will be playing at the Roy Arias Theater Center, right in the heart of Midtown, 300 West 43rd Street. That's right on 8th Avenue and 43rd Street in New York. So anybody who had the excuse that they they couldn't see it in March because it was out of the way, it was on the east side, it was downtown, blah, 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 blah. No, there there isn't a subway that doesn't go. Except maybe the 4, 5, and 6. You know, and those are still only a couple of blocks away. But you can take the 1, 2, 3, A, C, E, Q, N, R, and the S train, and the 7, I believe, to get to Times Square and go see Shalom Damak and Evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon. Some of the, the final details are still being worked out, but it's playing July 31st through August 12th, that's a, a Tuesday through the next Sunday, right at the Roy Arias Theater Center on West 43rd Street. For more information, go to shalomdammit.com. Not all the info's been put up there yet, but it will be this week. Shalomdammit.com. And that's also the great place to see Rabbi Saul's rabbinical reflections, the clips of his YouTube stuff. Check it out, shalomdammit.com. Everybody, of course, check out davesgoneby.com for back episodes of this show. And let me just give a couple of shout-outs to friends of the neighborhood. Anybody who has been on this program in the past counts as a friend of the neighborhood. And so, a shout-out to Jeffrey Sweet, whose one-act play, A Little Family Time, is being done as part of More of Our Parts. That's at the Harold Clerman Theater. It's a production by Theater Breaking Through Barriers which used to be theater by the blind, but I guess blind now is not a word people want to use. So they're theater breaking through barriers, and they're doing some one acts, including Jeff Sweet's A Little Family Time that's happening from this weekend all the way through July 1st. A shout-out to Soda and his new band Emotion Pictures. They're playing in Patchog, 89 North Music, is the, what the place is called, on June 27th. For more information, go to officialsoda.com. Yes, that is the singer-songwriter's name, Soda. I uh, want to give, let's see, oh, a congratulations to Catherine Russell of A Perfect Crime. She won the Legend of Off-Broadway Award from the Off-Broadway Alliance that was given away at Sargis just this past Wednesday. Uh, again, as we talked to Catherine Russell just a couple of weeks ago about the fact that she has played Margaret Thorne Brent in Perfect Crime nearly 21,000 times. Oh, and by the way, also honored by the um, the Off-Broadway Alliance at that ceremony was Gerard Alessandrini, who created, of course, Forbidden Broadway, and reminding you that Forbidden Broadway is coming back to Off-Broadway, yay, early in July. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I uh, want to give a shout-out to Tim Ward, 
He uh, has a new book out called Zombies on Kilimanjaro. It's all about a father-son journey above the clouds, and it's available on Amazon. Everybody go see Linda Lavin on Broadway in The Lions. I think this is your last opportunity, or it might have closed last weekend. I have to check that. I might, I might have made an oopsie there. But do go see a Jew go... Bleh, excuse me. A Jew Grows in Brooklyn at the Jackie Onassis Theater on West 46th Street featuring Jake Ehrenreich. See Carrie Hoffman in My Sinatra at Sophia's. You have one more week to see Christine Petty and Miss Abigail at Sophia's. And also, she's in Newsical. That's still playing. Everybody subscribe, please, to DrDemento.com for brand new Dr. Demento episodes every week. Listen to Everything Old is New Again on WBAI Sunday Nights with David Kenny. Um, that's 99.5 FM in New York. But, of course, you can listen on WBAI.org. Read Alan Sherstool's Studies in Crap in San Francisco Weekly and no doubt coming to The Village Voice soon because he will be the uh, film editor of The Village Voice in the weeks ahead. Congratulations to Alan on that. And... Congratulations to me for getting through another episode of Dave's Gone By. Should be back next week, 10 in the morning, here at uncradio.com. Not sure what guest we're going to have, if any. We, we're trying to line up a few people over June and uh, July. Should be a lot of fun, whatever we do. So, to go out, uh, yeah, let's, let's, I kinda, kinda, kind of got cut off while doing the uh, little tribute to Jet Richard Adler, who passed this past week, just on Thursday at age 90. He's the guy who wrote um, Rags to Riches, the Tony Bennett song uh, that Bennett did in 1953. He also... Um, uh, what happened was he and his writing partner, Jerry Ross, were on this huge role because they, the, they did Damn Yankees and then the pajama game, one after the other. And they were the, like the hottest riding team on Broadway. But unfortunately, Jerry Ross died about five months after Damn Yankees opened. And so that left Richard Adler kind of casting about for other projects. He did win a Tony for composing the music to a musical called Kwamina, but he never had really another big hit. Uh, he was married five times. Wow. Uh, got a couple of kids, got a bunch of grandkids, so our condolences to them. So let us go out with a song by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross from their classic musical, Damn Yankees. This is from the 1994 Broadway revival, that terrific revival that they did. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, I just it just remains for me to say, stay cool. I mean, for real, guys, it's 100 degrees out there. Stay cool. Enjoy your weekend. If you want to see the stampede, definitely go grab it. Try and stay in the shade. And see you next week here for another episode of Dave's Gone By. Until then, have a great time and gone by. Goodbye, old friend.
something I must let you know I haven't said it much I guess I've lost my touch But my old girl, I love you so Now I know it hasn't all been rosy We've had squabbling days when tears were brought about But in a moment or two We would bill and coo And never even Till then Goodbye old girl 